my camera up for you. Sixth episode of Rank and Review. This week's guest is returning Jason Dubray, and he and me, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, are going to talk about six WTF DMC. That's what the F movies director masterclass. And these are some epic movies, so it's going to be a kind of epic episode. And as usual, you should go into it expecting there to be some coarse language, some spoilers, and Jason and I are going to quarrel a little bit. I think we still part company friends here, but uh, yeah, it's it's another interesting mixed bag of an episode, and I hope you enjoy that. And if you have any feedback to give me, you can do that by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please check out the website at rankinreview.ca. And if you like Rank and Review, you have good taste in podcasts. And I think you would probably also enjoy the Terror Table podcast. So you should check out the Terror Table podcast wherever fine podcasts are found. And now, on with the WTF. All right, welcome once again, Mr. Jason Dubray, to Rank and Review. You're always controversial, (laughs) Jason Dubray. Well, we got an interesting episode, because we're doing WTF, DMC, What the Fuck, Director Masterclass. <laughs> These are all movies that I think are made by talented directors, even though I talk shit about David Lynch. I don't think he's untalented necessarily. I just don't think we always agree with each other. Um, but the movies themselves, I think, are at the very least, shall we say, challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I think that would obviously split audiences. Uh, for instance, Robert Altman's Shortcuts was the movie that he did right after The Player, and it was sort of a blank check and actually, for him. And we'll get into this later, but as far as filming it, he filmed Shortcuts before The Player. Oh, really? That's yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but the success of The Player helped this yes. movie sort of get, mm-hmm. get Bef- done. And before that, what yeah. he had... He wanted to make this for a long time. Yes. And he did that. Yeah. Same thing with uh, Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson. He made Boogie Nights, oh. and he was given basically a blank check and do what you want. We just want to be in the business of pr- producing the next Paul Thomas Anderson. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. So, again, he wanted to get the movie out as quickly as he could to, you know, keep the heat on after the popularity of Boogie Nights. Yeah. And Magnolia, this big sprawling epic, is what he comes up with. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them are only movies that you could maybe make being an established director, having, you know, made your classic, made a big Mm -hmm. hit, then you can make the experiment. And uh, it's often been said that a lot of times a director's favorite movie is a lot of the times his least successful movie. But the Mm -hmm. ones that they personal, their personal passion project is the, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they'll, they will defend it, you know. And I know some, there's... There's people like Woody Allen who doesn't like the movies that are successful that he makes, but he likes uh, some of the lesser ones or the ones that didn't do as well. Like Stardust Memories is one that he 
actually enjoys. He he doesn't he claims he doesn't like any of his movies and they're all bad, but that's one that he kind of stopped in some ways that streak of the Annie Hall and 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 Manhattan and these these amazing critical and interiors critical successes. Yeah. But if you list those movies, his favorite is is the one that didn't do well. Right. He could understand the ones that don't do well. Maybe he really likes Cassandra's dream because somebody has to. <laughs> I like Cassandra's dream. <laughs> but, uh, We've never, yeah, we weren't talking about Woody today, but uh, that'd be a different uh, conversation. It's a whole other podcast. A whole other podcast. <laughs> but never underestimate the the strength that uh, a director wields on a film. I just saw the trailer just drop for this uh, "The Dead Won't Die" movie mm-hmm. with Bill Murray and Chloe Sevigny, and it's mm-hmm. like the most star-studded zombie movie ever. Yeah. But it's directed by Jim Jarmusch, so he will find a way to make it boring. <laughs> 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 is that unfair I apologize it doesn't necessarily be bad it just means he'll find a way to make it for you <laughs> but, uh, so I want to sort of talk about if we can not just the madness of the movies but mm-hmm. uh, you know why we think these particular directors made these particular movies mm-hmm. and it's going to be impossible for me to not get into the very many many similarities between specifically shortcuts and magnolia mm-hmm. i mean is he borrowing from altman is he stealing from altman is it an homage <laughs> what are we well, you see i've always thought that too and we'll talk about that again when we're reviewing those movies but uh when i first saw it, i thought the first few films that Paul Thomas Anderson did, with the exception of Heart Eight, yeah. Heart Eight was an indie film. Nobody has seen it, and people should seek it out. It is quite a quite an interesting find. film. I saw it on VHS. It's, it it and is ever since, <laughs> and I rented it from somewhere yeah. in the in the '90s, and again, I haven't seen it since either. But uh, and that was all before Boogie Nights. I I, I kind of agree with you uh, to a point. With this, I, I think Boogie Nights was heavily influenced by Scorsese. Goodfellas, and yeah, for sure. Um, I think not just Goodfellas, but Scorsese's style. And he used it in you know, some other movies, too. Um, and I thought of Shortcuts a lot the first time I saw Magnolia. This time, again, I had it in my head, okay, we're going to be talking about them being yeah. very, very similar. And I, I just saw, I, I saw enormous differences in 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 some aspects of the approach, I, I think some of the Scorsese juice is still in Magnolia, and the way he's shooting things is a way that Robert Altman never would have. So as no, the directorial it. approaches are different, the screenplays might have some similarities. Uh, there's some uh, similar actors that we'll talk about in in both films, um, but I think what's how it's handled and, and what's done towards the end is different, even though there is something that is kind of similar, could represent the same idea, but I it's it's, it's handled in a totally different way because I describe Magnolia as as shortcuts on crack. But again, we can save that discussion okay. for the for the reviews. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad movie, by the way. I mean, I, I have a lot of really good things to say about Magnolia. So, some movies which are on crack are terrific. Yeah, <laughs> some some uh, are not. But I do think that they qualify all of them as kind of WTF movies. Like, uh, even even the milder ones, like Arthur Penn, the director of Bonnie and Clyde, doing mm-hmm. this really bizarre Penn and Teller movie. Yeah. 
uh, I have a theory on that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, calling in a favor or something like that? No, I, I just feel like his, his career was, was dying off. Right. He was just trying to get some work. I mean, it was... It was, it was, it was, what, 20, 20 years, 20 this. years after Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. And, you know, not, there are not a lot of directors that can have a, you know, a 50 year career. Some yeah. people are Clint Eastwood and people like that are very fortunate uh, to have that. I don't think he was one of those guys. He was, he was a guy in the late sixties and into the seventies by the late eighties. And the type of movies that came out in the eighties were very different from, late 60s and throughout the 70s. Yeah. I, I think he was just happy to to get some work, and that's why he chose that. I'm not sure this was his dream project. I, right. I could be wrong. I don't know the man, but... Well, he, he was on the cutting edge of cinema for a while there, mm-hmm. and he was making pretty interesting and irreverent pieces. But you're right. Like, the last few things he did were HBO movies made for television. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, yeah. but Scorsese, I don't know if he would have had as much of a mainstream career if Bonnie and Clyde had not been released, you know, Beforehand. some years just before his he came out of NYU film school. Yeah. Uh, so no, a very influential, important director. As but, far as bringing realism to the crime drama, Bonnie and Clyde oh, yeah. is just like incredibly important and influential, mm-hmm. undeniably. But again, it, so that's basically the whole thing that we're going to be echoing throughout this entire podcast. Mm-hmm. Really interesting directors doing really bizarre movies. And the, and the only other other one we didn't mention was Cameron Crowe. Vanilla Sky. Uh, Vanilla Sky. And that was, that was right after uh, Almost, Almost Famous, Famous. which um, you might disagree with me, but I think that's uh, Cameron Crowe's best film. Easily. Comfortably, and so by a large margin, and, his best and, film. and so then he also was kind of had that that blank check type of a thing. I think right after, yeah, and and it wasn't much time. Was it the next year? It might be yeah. the year. The next well, year it came out. And so it's again we can talk about it with the on a movie for movie basis, but maybe that blank check, depending on the person, depending on the time, is a double edged sword. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to run into this, so I will just we'll we'll just get it right up in front, you know. I'm a story guy, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of these movies are about breaking down the narrative structure, yeah. right? Um, I, I have inroads. I mean, Raymond Carver, there's nine Raymond Carver short stories in a poem inserted into uh, shortcuts among a bunch of other just created scenes. Mm-hmm. So uh, I can make a, a literary meal out of that if I choose to. Mm-hmm. But as far as me, uh, I'm going to try and let go of me, you know. <laughs> For the sake of this episode, so we're not having the same argument over and over again. Mm-hmm. Part of the WTF episode is that we're letting go of story structure this episode. Because otherwise, I, I'm just going to just you know, spend the entire time banging the same drum. And I don't, I don't yeah. want to do that. But, uh, yes. On some level, I will find so I, I find that frustrating with a lot, if not most, of these films. Hmm. But uh, it'll it'll go without saying, I guess, for moving forward. Yeah, yet I almost feel like uh, I say three of these movies are. I'll say okay. I'll, I'll narrow it down to two. I, I two for sure. I would say are are writers' films, mm-hmm. even though they do. Um, have ensemble casts and overlapping stories and that kind of thing. And I don't know if, if what, what you mean by that. I know what you mean as far as Lynch goes. Yeah. I, could, I totally understand what you're talking about. But as, I, I think there are stories in, in a couple of these, and uh, but it's not focusing on one sort of clean narrative. It's 
several narratives that happen to come together and deal with overlapping themes. And I've never seen a problem with that. So, right. so I, I don't know if that's uh, that will be a frustration for, for instance, you. With, with Magnolia and Shortcuts, yeah. it's a lot about what we don't see in the in-between. We keep on catching up with characters, yeah. so we have to fill in the blanks ourselves. Typically, movies don't ask us to do that much work. Usually, I like a movie that will engage me, but especially in, in Shortcuts, they're juggling 22 characters. In Magnolia, it's nine, and it seems like a lot. Shortcuts mm-hmm. has 22. It's <laughs> okay. a lot, yeah. Uh, so... Uh, it, it, it engages you mm-hmm. in that if you want to if you want to keep in going and and uh, follow the beat of this three hour sprawling narrative, mm-hmm. you got to be paying attention and picking up each ball as it's mm-hmm. dropping. And uh, so, if you're with the movie, that's really going to work for you. If you're not with the movie, then the the narrative just keeps on restarting every few minutes. But then, can can you can you watch the movie again and get something different out of it? Because there are one viewing of shortcuts does not give you the whole thing because there's so much going on. Yeah. But it's like life. Yeah. I mean, when when you're seeing people around that you've seen before, I mean, there's I points where you Magnolia have to catch up. Kind of simplifies it by bringing it down to nine people in a block instead mm-hmm. of twenty two people and a city, <laughs> right? So yeah. Uh, but okay. again, uh, we're already starting to review those movies. Yeah. So uh, let's just say it one more time. Is there anything else you want to say by way of introduction? No, I, I think one of my points is as far as the WTF. Quality. There's only one movie that we'll mention where I I completely did not understand or see this coming from this particular director. Right. The other ones seem consistent with either their styles or the points that they were at in their careers. Right. Um, and uh, and we we didn't mention Danny Boyle either. Right. That we have been completely <clears throat> nude in Paradise. Paradise, which uh, many people will not have seen. No. It's but a... I understand why he did it. I can understand why he did that movie at that particular moment in time, because uh, it was a few years after Train Spotting. His movies after Train Spotting were not as successful, and it's before Twenty Eight Days Later, yeah. and which then led to Slumdog Millionaire and all of the stuff that he does now. So no, he did actually two uh, movies for the BBC. As far as I know, the mm-hmm. other one's never been made available on this side of the ocean. Both of mm-hmm. them seventy five minutes long. Both of them experimentally shot with the digital videos. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I think this was all practice gearing up Being for ready 28 for... days later. Yeah. But we can talk about that when we get to the six what the fuck director masterclass movies that we're going to watch. Uh, we have Penn and Teller Get Killed from Arthur Penn. We have Shortcuts from Altman. We have Magnolia from Paul Thomas Anderson. Vacuuming Completely Nude in Paradise from Danny Boyle. Uh, Vanilla Sky from Cameron Crowe and yes from David Lynch Inland Empire or A Woman in Trouble So I'm going to guess that uh, how one feels about Penn and Teller get killed 
will have a lot to do with how one feels about Penn and Teller. They're a fairly irreverent comic magi- magician duo mm-hmm. that have been doing their thing since the early 80s. I think this could be argued sort of the, the peak of at least the first wave of their popularity mm-hmm. would have been this movie, Penn and Teller Get Killed. And there's kind of two stories going on here. There's the story of Penn arrogantly going on a, on a talk show and declaring that his life would be, quote, more fun if mm-hmm. someone was trying to kill him and yes. it, it would motivate him and this of course triggers some crazed person and this war of pranks that is mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. between he and Teller and yeah. their, their co-conspirator this, this, uh, that's a movie right that, there that, that's essentially the two plots that we're bouncing back yeah. and forth and they're going to be playing with your expectations is this a pl- prank is it not they, could, they, they mm-hmm. trick you enough times that, that then they, they, they start wearing away your trust but <laughs> when yes. and if you can take the movie seriously is kind of the joke of the movie mm-hmm. It's very 80s. Penn still has his, like, ladies perm phase going on where he has a haircut like your favorite aunt for some reason. But it is what it is. I mean, I find it fairly amusing, and it's a pretty dark comedy, and it has a memorable ending. I remember seeing this at a young age, and that ending really sticking with me. It's just quite an ending. Very absurd. Um, But it is... Penn and Teller Get Killed have any value in 2019, I guess would be my opening salvo to you. <clears throat> to give you an idea about how I feel about this movie, okay, we have uh, three movies that we're talking about uh, on this show that are uh, over three hours long. Yeah. And this felt like the longest film of the list. <laughs> it's an hour and a half, I right. think, if that. Uh I, I hated this movie so, so much. Uh, I, I could not... I, I, I wish, because you're saying that you were kind of amused by it. I don't know if you were talking about when you first saw it, that you're amused or you're still amused by it. I I like dark comedy. I really like dark comedy, but to me it was just stupid. I, I was annoyed by them. I, I would have liked somebody to actually kill them. Um, well, uh, the characters in the movie and the people themselves so that uh, they would not be like making any any more movies like this, which they haven't. Right. Now, I have not watched their TV show. And I heard good things about the TV show in the last wave of their of their their run there and so how did was Penn and Teller's bullshit I think it's they called they had a documentary series called bullshit and then yeah. they have a magic series called fool us okay uh, bullshit's the one that I heard good things about have, have you uh, I mean I haven't watched the entire series I mean I, I think that it's polarizing. They definitely would take uh, sensitive issues and dig deep, and they weren't mm-hmm. afraid to shoulder in and, and press buttons. So it was provocative, yeah. and I can appreciate that. But that's the thing. There's something about the in-your-face humor of Penn & Teller. Mm-hmm. My thought re-watching this movie now, because I, I, I had this memory of it being quite funny when I originally watched it. Yeah. I don't think I hated it as much as you, but I was certainly stone-faced as I was watching the movie. Like, I didn't laugh, and it is no. a comedy yeah so uh that's a problem i i it feels like a lost artifact it feels like this movie exists for that time when they were having their first peak in popularity um i enjoy them much more as a a, a illusionists and their Mm -hmm. stage show yeah i think that 
the voice of Penn is kind of a shrill one. Even when I agree with what he's saying, sometimes he comes off like such an asshole that I wish he wasn't on my side. <laughs> so uh, he has this... But there's that interesting d- dynamic, the Jay and Silent Bob dynamic. There's mm-hmm. the one guy who never shuts up, and there's the guy who doesn't say anything. I think it would be hard to say that Penn and Teller were untalented, but they were not on put on this worth to, to write a screenplay. And I no. don't think that their gifts are best served in the motion picture format. I don't think no. the problem is even necessarily strange as it may sound because they're the stars and the writers of this film, mm-hmm. Penn and Teller. It's the format with which Penn and Teller is being served to us. They should be on a live stage. The yes. Penn getting hit by those those drills all simultaneously, mm-hmm. if you're in the live studio audience, would be funny. Oh, you'd yeah. know it was a gag, but you would still laugh at mm-hmm. the spatter effect and yep. you'd get off on that, right? Uh, in the movie... The trick, the illusion is expected. We know that everything is fake, right? So what I end up getting off more on is not the actual tricks themselves, but the narrative storytelling of, is this a trick that they're playing on one another? Or is this the real deal? That's the only real tension that does sometimes Mm -hmm. work or does sometimes pay off comedically. Well, well, the only reason it exists, that they exhaust those tricks, and you said after a while... you. If you're into it, then then you're going to be like, oh, what's happening next? Will this be a trick? Is this really happening? Um, if you get to the, the second one and you are just so bored by the idea, then the, the, the next nine are not going to be interesting. But the reason it exists is to, to fool the audience into thinking that, well, maybe there actually isn't some sort of a psycho that is coming after them. Someone's going to take off a mask and this was all in a This was all, uh, and, you know, they flirt with that yeah. idea, but then, you know, we do have that other, I don't know if a payoff is the right word. Uh, I would say that in more talented people's hands, the end of the movie could be absolutely brilliant, <laughs> but it feels like such a... It, it feels too light to be dark comedy, yet it's dealing with suicide. Yeah. You have a whole series of people, and I'm going to get some ruining the end of the movie, but I mean, we, we have the spoilers. <laughs> but, but one person after another uh, kills themselves. Um, and Teller it just is a cycle. Yeah. Kills Penn. Yeah. And when he realizes it was a joke, kills himself. Yes. Their female companion, upon finding them to death, realizes it has gone too far, kills herself. We, we don't actually see any evidence of her body like, she splattered. Jumps out the she jumps out the window, but she's would she not have like splattered onto the ground? <laughs> it, like think. the next shot is of I think the police officers showing up. I could have the order wrong, right? Uh, and they don't seem to be aware that a woman has just uh, the, you know thrown herself to her death outside. The foe assassin, upon seeing everyone else dead, is like, well. They're going to blame this on me. And then it just goes on and on. There's one person after another. And we just hear all these gunshots. And uh... again, for some reason, in 1989, I thought that was fucking hilarious. And I was bemused. It is very 80s. I was bemused by it this time. But I didn't find it fucking hilarious. There's There's just weird moments. They, I like the scene, the first prank that Teller plays on Penn, where he is 
sliding the marbles to the gate at the security center at the, at the airport. Every time Penn goes through, Teller finds a way to set you like up. That? I, I, it was, I like how furious <laughs> Penn mm-hmm. was being made by it and yeah. how like sneaky Teller was. Uh, like that initial setup of it, I thought that was fairly amusing. And I also thought it was amusing when they went to the really dark phase where they were all uh, boarded up in, uh, in an apartment for a while and everything got black and white and he was chain-smoking and playing a saxophone for no reason. There was some, like, just oh, yeah, pure um, absurdity, like, but in a very specific 1989 kind of delivery. It, it felt a little bit like, in my criticism of a lot of Saturday Night Live movies, um, they've improved over the years, but... Mm-hmm. They would take something which was great as a five-minute sketch. sketch and try to stretch it into an hour-and-a-half movie. And what I think was happening here is there, some of these maybe as a five-minute sketch would have worked really well in a variety show. Yeah. But they were stringing them together, and it was a whole bunch of sketches um, that were, you know, sort of follow the, the plot you're talking about. But, like, for somebody who's committed to story, I, I just felt like, why are we spending so much time here... Uh, I, I've been told, and maybe maybe they're trying to break that a little bit, but like comedies in threes, not you know sevens or twenties, <laughs> yeah. or like you know it just goes on and on. But there's no real payoff to a, a lot of these jokes. So I I get why you'd like the airport but, section. I, I I thought that was early enough in the film that it, where I was still holding out some hope. That, right. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh okay, you know that's that's kind of interesting. But wh- like, where did it? Where was, there the, where was the payoff? I that? think to give them some measure of credit, they were trying something unique here. This was not like any other comedy that was coming out at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's knocking on the meta sort of Charlie Kaufman door at times. Uh, I think that uh, Penn and Teller, part of what might be the problem with putting them in a fict- fiction landscape of film is that they don't like to pretend that they have mystical powers okay mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. very much we live in the real world yeah there's no magic there's no god we're going to trick you and we're going to trick you well but we're going to let you know that we're tricking you that doesn't typically work in film film is about tricking the audience that's mm-hmm. it's all artifice it is and uh, uh they don't live well in that world that's why i say the live stage yeah. atmosphere is kind of where they belong mm-hmm. and i suppose you could film one of their magic shows but i i guarantee you much like filming a play it's just not going to be the same it doesn't thing feel the same as being there so i appreciate what they're trying to do and i don't hate pen and teller sometimes pen drives me crazy but mm-hmm. i do think are you supposed to like yeah that's a character that's the image that's, <laughs> it, you know they're supposed to have that balance yeah for sure and 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 so i get that i mean you know, I, I I would rather see Jay and Silent Bob. Right. You know, I would rather see a Charlie Kaufman movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe going to their live show would be a different experience, but not. And this was this was kind of before the '90s. I really liked the '90s as far as films, but one of the drawbacks is we had people like this that were given money to make a film. Um, and this is this is a much better film than say Spice World, right. where the Spice Girls as pop stars were given this. But again, movie that's actually and, a fair correlative, I think, yeah. because like uh, you giving somebody a movie who has no business having a movie, yes. like from Justin to Kelly or something. Like yes, that. Yep. what was the Yahoo serious guy that, oh. that Australian stand-up comedian yes. or whatever? Here, have a movie. Yes. I don't know what to do with the movie, <laughs> right? So, so they're just. 
putting this bunch of stuff together and what I'm feeling from you is that it's hateful completely ignore it and miss it what I'm feeling from me is that it's really weird and it's not as funny as I thought it was but it remains really weird see I love weird though that's the thing that's why I can't reconcile sometimes when we when we have um, movies like this and and I appreciate that you're you're kind of picking out the good things Mm -hmm. in there to to promote because it's it's not a movie that gets a lot of promotion a lot of people have seen it so some people could listen to this and just find something completely different to watch <laughs> other than the the same old plot that you would normally get. So I appreciate the independent nature of this, and uh, I, I really like filmmakers to take a risk, but I, I think we're going to be talking about a movie in here that not a lot of people know about later on, which is w- way, way, way more worth it than this is. Yeah. And, and again, like, this might be the freak of this list in a little ways and that, like, I'm working defense for it, but I have much yeah. more of a of an affection towards freak than I do for this. Like, my, well, I'd rather watch freak. Too. My I was hard on freak, freak, but my memory of freak was closer to living up to my uh, the the experience yes. of it than this was. Mm-hmm. But I still can't completely throw it away. Well, I mean, like in the '80s, we were I'd have sleepovers and watch garbage pail kids, right? and we'd laugh and laugh and laugh. <laughs> but that's it's just terrible. I mean, but it's... Don't relive that experience. Yes, no. Exactly. No. A little more butter, please. Coming up. Yeah. I came home, I told her our whole life could change. Earl tells me to go on a diet. I'll find a way to keep... Well, this house is half mine, yeah, you know. Is that a joke? Lady, I work 16 hours a day to make ends meet. Yeah. I bake all night and work all day. I thought you made phone calls at night. I said... Ola, if I have one more beer, I'm going to have to take a nap. And she says, I wondered what it would take to get you into bed. Do you think he's attractive? Who? He kissed you, didn't he? I want to know the truth. We're just talking, right? Yes, Marion, we're just talking. How long are you going to do that? Do you know what time it is? Okay, uh, first of all, a very shameful confession Hmm? for a film aficionado okay I have never seen Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye Mm -hmm. and I've never seen Nashville I haven't seen two of his like most quote important works Mm -hmm. but not to spoil the brew too early of the Robert Altman movies that I have seen Mm -hmm. I think Shortcuts is my personal favorite Mm -hmm. I really, really, really like it. And again, considering all of my, you know, narrative, you know, a little being a little bit anal about storytelling and through line and, you know, discipline structure, this kind of explodes that. I can be taken in by something that is a little bit out of the Mm -hmm. box. I am not stuck up about art house cinema is what I'm trying to say, okay? Shortcut stars Andy McDowell, Bruce Dern, Julian Moore, Matthew Modine, Anne Archer, Fred Ward, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Chris Penn, Lily Taylor, Robert Downey Jr., Madeline Stowe, Tim Robbins, Lily Tomlin, Tom Waits, Francis McGorman, Peter Gallagher, Annie Ross, Laurie Singer, Jack Lemmon, Lyle Lovett, Buck Henry, and most importantly, Huey Lewis. As well, you get some uh, appearances by Alex Trebek and (laughs) a bunch of other folks, yeah. But those 22 names Mm -hmm. are 22 named characters called from nine Raymond Carver short stories and one poem Mm -hmm. that are going to be intersecting each other all over Los Angeles. A lot of purists to Raymond Carver didn't like that they kind of uh, up 
upgraded the settings. Usually this was sort of middle America mm. sort of slummy stories and he's moved them all to LA. Kind of middle class. And largely he's upgraded their lifestyles. They've made them wealthier yeah. and better off than usually they're in the stories. I don't think sort it of. hurts the stories at all. No. I really don't. It's a tough sell of a movie because of all of that and because of the note they're trying to ring. This weird Chekhovian thing. This sort of almost amusing helplessness that you feel about life when you see something that you can relate to so much that it kind of hurts and warms you simultaneously it's a really tricky note to ring and he hits it repeatedly and often throughout this three-hour epic tapestry so yes out of the gate I am a huge fan of shortcuts. I've always been a huge fan of shortcuts. From the first time I saw it at the late lamented Place Riel, mm -hmm. I remember stumbling out of the theater, yeah. trying to make sense of it. <laughs> I think know? that's the only theater it was it played in too. Was it? I, I don't think it played anywhere else in Saskatoon. That's I remember seeing, where I saw it anyway. I, yeah. I saw the coming attraction at Place Riel, and I and I know it played there, um, but then it seemed like it was it was there and gone. Yeah very fast as a lot of actually really good movies in Saskatoon yeah. do Blink seem to disappear. It. Blink yeah. and you miss it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I have, I have seen the two Altman movies that you've mentioned, um, but it took so long to find Nashville. Right. I had a lot of trouble finding Nashville. Um, and Nashville was worth the wait. It was, it, it is so good. And my, my struggle is, um, trying, trying to pick my favorite Robert Altman movie. And I think it's between Shortcuts and Nashville. Maybe Nashville just a little bit more. Uh, and talk about weird. I mean, we were talking about weird a moment ago. Yeah. Nashville's weird. Okay. Uh, Shortcuts is also weird. Uh, I would also throw in Gosford Park in there. And I love Cookie's Fortune. <clears throat> Cookie's Fortune is an underrated. <laughs> I love that movie. And MASH and... Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I mean, he, so we're he, fans of Altman, obviously. Yeah, the and the player I'm not even mentioning here, right. and the player is great. The but was what was funny is just from uh, looking at supplementary material on shortcuts in the player, and I don't remember which one where I got this information from. Uh, the player, which was like such an edgy satire, and all of Hollywood got behind it, and there were so many appearances by these Hollywood stars, and Altman's back with the player. He, he dismissed it as a really simple story, and it was almost like he was hired on, uh, it was a job he was hired on to do. Yeah. Versus shortcuts. And the reason Tim Robbins got the lead in the player was because they'd already shot his part of shortcuts. Right. So, short, uh, and I don't know if what happened there as far as the release or if there was still more of shortcuts he needed to finish off and why it was a year later, but, uh, I mean, it, was a, it was a good. It was a good two years. Project all the way around. Yeah, enormous. Yet trying to like balance all of those like top notch movie actors that were in the player, basically yeah. ripping Hollywood apart, uh, was uh, I'm sure a lot of work too. Uh, I really like <clears throat> Robert Altman's style, as I understand it. Uh, to me, I, it, it feels like even when it's extraordinary what's happening in his stories. It is hyper-realism, and the, the way he would film it is he'd have all of these people together, and he has all these mics all over the place, all these cameras, and he shoots the scene, 
and he shoots the scene about three times in a master yeah. and and then and then puts it together and he lets his actors improvise they kind of know where they have to go with this but he lets them improvise a lot and he picks out the best bits in editing and and, and puts it together and and so that's um I, I really like that style. It would not be for everyone. So every, anytime he would win an award, and it still, I think it's a sin that he didn't win an Academy Award for Best Director for something along along the way. Um, he he said, I, I don't actually know what a director does. <laughs> but whatever he was doing is well, a great way to do it. Well, so. something out because... Uh, a lot of actors who have reputations to be difficult will work with Altman yes. and be on their best fucking behavior, right? Just well, to will. work with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he brings a cast. Well, let's talk about some of the... I think that probably the most through-line narrative, or at least the, the one that has the most tangent connections directly, has to do with the uh, family of uh, Andy McDowell. And, yes. Uh, what's his name? Is Bruce Dern? Not Bruce Dern. Altman. Or not all Bruce Davison. Bruce Davison, Davison, Davison pardon me. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because, yeah, they're quite well to do, quite put together. He, yes. taught, he reads the news. Um, she's a perfect homemaker and everything like this. Bad things can't happen to them, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Lily Tomlin accidentally hits their son with her car. And yeah. he gets up and brushes it off and walks away from her. And I can't talk to strangers. Yeah, he which, seems like he's okay. Yeah. So they take him to the hospital. Matthew Modine is his doctor. We meet the Jack Lemmon character tangentially through there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anne Archer, who's the clowns at the hospital. So uh, all of the other characters and storylines, I mean, it happens all over the place. But I think if there was a through line, I think that one is maybe it. Uh, Emotionally. And there's also, the in that story, is this, Lyle Lovett is this baker who, uh, uh, this boy is supposed to, the tra- one of the great tragedies of this story is this boy is supposed to have his birthday party. His name's Casey, and he and he, you know, wants a, a baseball themed, themed birthday cake. Birthday cake. Uh, but then he gets run over by or hit by this car, and then they're in the hospital dealing with this. And this this baker does not understand what's happened, and he, he says, gets kind of dismissed you, during a stressful time when Davidson's talking to him, and he d- just decides to call this family nonstop and leave threatening kind of dark messages on their answering machine because he has some he's having a tough time and his own sort of breakdown there's some suggestion of a maybe some alcoholism involved with That's that character too through all of these stories um before that one of the other pieces that i think is important at least in my most recent viewing of this is they start off the movie uh, with the, this med fly problem in Los Angeles. Right, they're spraying this. And they're spraying it, and lots of people are concerned that they're spraying this poisonous chemical uh, all over the city. Uh, and uh, Andy McDowell's character is very, 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 very protective of her only child. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, watch out for this and almost instilling fear in this boy and you see before anything happens that he is just white as a sheet and he looks like he spends all his time indoors um, safe and and so he he's not being walked to school by his mom so when he goes outside he's already heard this idea that the air is kind of poison there might be poison in their swimming pool that kind of thing so he's he's rushing to get to school as fast as he possibly can, and he's running, not looking, not looking, not looking, and that's how he gets hit by the car. 
And, and so there's a little bit of a comment in there about uh, how, you know, the smothering and the overprotective parent. But in contrast to some of the other stories we might talk about where there's very dysfunctional parenting happening among several different generations in the Jack Lemmon character who only appears in this story. Uh, and if you can get Jack Lemmon and, you know, <laughs> may God rest his soul into your movie, get Jack Lemmon. I don't care what he's doing. He makes everything interesting. But he he pretty much... Uh, Nine it, and a half minute steady cam yeah. shot of Jack Lemmon's face delivering a monologue. Yeah, so interesting. In the middle of a three-hour movie. He could, tell, he could tell a story about anything. And this this is not kind of a... It's not the darkest character that Jack Lemmon played, but it's uh, not the nicest uh, guy either. It's not the darkest either. until he, he he's just, leaves. <laughs> then it's kind of one of the... But that's exactly what he did, because <laughs> yeah. he you know, he, he ab- abandoned his family in a very similar way, so he can't take any any sort of difficult situation. That whole speech was him getting something off of his chest yes. for him. Yeah. yeah, in the middle of this crisis for his son, yeah. who has, uh, you know, kind of overcome his childhood here and and this this situation rather nasty situation where his um his uh bruce davidson's mother caught jack lemon with uh her sister yeah and this entire story is him trying to justify what happened years and years later yeah he's finally having the conversation that he probably should have had then <laughs> and, and he shows up with uh to show this kind of bar trick this what he thinks is a magic trick yeah. to try to connect with his grandson his son but to show it to his friend. grandson who is never awake for the entire time that, that and who the lemons there he gets the name wrong as he's talking but, about it but we know these people like th- that lemon character i i know him because to that, uh, there's there's another family where they have a situation where their kid is in has has uh, been been shot and and he talks and shows concern for those people all throughout. They walk away saying, "What a fabulous guy this guy is!" Yeah. But when it comes to his own family, he can't show any sort of intimacy, any sort of love, and that's generally throughout. speaking. Though I think that they handle the characters gently, with the exception of maybe the Tim Robbins character. He's, we're we're he's, not allowed to dismiss anyone as just outright awful. I think that Tim Robbins is just an asshole. <laughs> but, the, but the irony is that he, he comes around and he does actually sort of, we don't know what happens afterwards, but he does turn into more the guy that he's supposed to be. He and corrects it's because, the situation. And it's because Madeline Stowe was so, and whatever happened to Madeline Stowe, yeah. she, she was such a, uh, such a terrific presence in a movie. And I paid a lot of attention to what she was doing this time. You see, this movie you have to watch several times over. Most people won't watch a three-hour movie once, but you need to watch this so many times because the performances are so good. Every time I zero in on somebody that I didn't zero in on before. Madeline Stowe knows her husband really well. Yeah. Knows that that, that he's cheating on her. Knows he's going to go get it out of his system. He's going to be rejected by whoever this is. He'll come back, and uh, and and she finds a way to uh, uh, subtly try to seduce him again, 
uh, and it has to do with telling the story, which then overlaps into another but one again, where another movie would judge that character for wanting to be with this asshole, but this movie doesn't, right? No. She's just trying to keep it together. Yeah, right. For her kids, and the bigger concern more than him cheating is like she kind of wants to catch him, and you know catch him in his lies but she also laughs because his lies are so bad and so stupid he's pretending like he's some sort of undercover uh uh drug officer trying to deal with the crack situation in la he's a traffic cop who pulls over women to try to get their uh to get their phone numbers and that kind of thing yeah and she just laughs and well not in his face but just laughs at like what a ridiculous liar he was um again the idea of being able to like characters and sort of not like I love like Lily Tomlin like oh. as an actress mm-hmm. and, and as a person. I, I've never met her, but like if I oh. did, I, my instinct would be to hug her. Yes, <laughs> I think she probably. <laughs> she would. I wonder be, if she gets security, but um... maybe, maybe not. You, you don't know what to like. But know, I love her. Yeah. But her character is kind of problematic. Like she uh, is. You. It's more than subtle. It's not even subtle. It's basically stated that the Tom Waits character assaulted her daughter, and yeah. she knows she sti- it. She sticks with him, and she stays with him. But and we again, still kind of like. But her. we know people like this too. I mean, I'm not saying that you, but I, I know people that like the age that she's at, this character, this particular time, to cut it off completely with this guy, and she feels like she's going to be alone. For the rest of her life, how would she ever meet somebody else? But another movie would judge her for it, and yes. again, this movie doesn't judge her for it. Altman does Ward not judge character. these characters too. That I mean, he he just shows them as they are. I mean, that's Fred Ward character loves his wife so much that it's intensely charming, but that he's able to fish next to this that's... corpse. Yes, yeah. Well, and on the three the... guys do it, and and he's actually. You could argue of the three, he's the most caring. But he still fishes but, next to the corpse. Yeah. Right? And at the time, the fishing was the most important thing. Do you yep. remember what happens to the fish? They, they get burned on the barbecue. He gets burned well, on the all, barbecue. They're all yeah. drunk in the hot tub. And yeah, they and they forget about, about it. And yeah. Gets burned. yeah. They didn't want to ruin the fishing trip, right? And it, like it was all for naught. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's another connection that you would make the second or third time through. I'd, I'd missed this time I watched it or I'd forgotten that when he retrieves Susie. Mm-hmm. The dog, Tim Robbins, ditches yeah. the family dog and then rescues it, repairing the situation he created. Yeah. It's Huey Lewis's kids. Yeah, he, we see him again. Yeah, I missed that, I think, before, but that was Huey Lewis. Just another little connection that need to be there. But, but that's where the, the, the working class nature of these characters, and maybe they have been, um, and I'd have to reread the stories to see how how much he raised their profile or their their you know their socioeconomic situation but he's a guy who's drinking beer uh out in the open on the porch or whatever and and he loves his fishing trip and that's the number one thing is his chance to get out with the guys and yeah. get away from for him that's his entire his, vacation his life year, and all of that right, right? Yeah. um and and so that um that that resonates and like they're going to ruin it by you know having the situation deal with right at the beginning body. and that's that's the guy's weekend it's gone yeah Right. Um, there's there's a lot. Just fe- everything feels very authentic about this. Um, one of the things I like about Altman is uh, maybe not as much as Lynch. When we talk about Lynch later on, is you, you still have to think with his films, and you have to reconcile some some question marks. I think there are question marks at the end of the player still um, about like what completely happened. 
one of the interesting ones I, I always focus in on and try to get my head around is uh, the Chris Penn, another another guy who died way too young, but Chris Penn's character. He's, he's married to Jennifer Jason Lee. She's a phone sex worker. Yeah, and yet their marriage is at a point where they aren't really having sex or and he kind of wants that side you know that kind of uh uh very sexualized side to her to come out in their marriage but it's not and they're also hard up for money because they go to a, a jazz club with robert downey jr and lily taylor and there's this this man who offers money to jennifer jason lee for a, a blowjob right and and Chris Penn kind of comes in at this one point and like, what's going on with this or whatever? And like, to me, like the, like the, the kicker is like, is we could have really used that money. She says we could have really used that money yeah. in there. Towards the end of the film, uh, they, they're taking the family to, uh, for a picnic and, uh, and then Downey Jr. And Chris Penn follow these young girls who are on bikes, uh, and give them a drink, and and they're, they're probably hoping to, to do something. It's interesting because it's played like Robert Downey Jr. is creating this situation. Right? He, he, yeah, he's got he's got more up. confidence. Yeah, uh, yeah. The Chris Penn character wouldn't create Initiate that. It. Yeah. In fact, there's points when they're when they're walking along, and he's saying like, "I don't want to be walking this long for a couple of cock teasers." I yeah. mean, you know, and and then. Uh, and then when when he finally gets whatever confidence to make this move, he is way 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 too aggressive with this woman, and uh, and then she starts to scream, and he pretty much murders her. Yeah, I read it differently. You know, I read it. He just fucking murdered her. But I didn't. But, see but any I think he. It's all. But it's all, this, all this built up um, yeah. sexual tension because the other thing that he does, like his relationship with Robert Downey Jr., is interesting because they will call each other in the middle of the day at work and tell each other kind of lies about these, um, you know, sexual, sexual things that are happening to them. And actually with Chris Penn's character, he is at that moment, he is seeing uh, a character take her clothes off and jump into the swimming pool while he's working in um, at this house on the uh, cleaning the pool or something. Uh, but he's not talking about that as much as Downey Jr. That's getting into all of this detail and so psychologically, it's it's just building up and building up and building up. So the, the whole thing with that character is it, it must be some sort of sexual tension has erupted and come out with this really violent action at the end where he murders her. Uh, the irony is that in the news, this woman's report is the only fatality in this major earthquake. earthquake. Yeah. Um, but they assume it's because of falling rocks. Yeah. But we don't know what happens after that. Like, how is the other friend not going to say something about... These guys came and murdered my friend. We were just have left to take in responsibility for creating the situation. I don't know, but we're left with that, and yeah. that's a strong. It's a, it's, it's a moral quandary here, and it's it's where like early on, when I watched Altman films, I I was still kind of thinking, okay, how does he feel about all of this? And women loved working with Altman apparently, right. and Doctor T and the women was kind of a little bit of a thing about how all these women will be in his films and they will do absolutely anything in his films. And, uh, and yet there's this act of a violence against women, a woman at the end of the film there that, uh, 
I, uh, I don't think it. I would. I didn't think it was problematic or anything like that. It's it just it, 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 with, it felt like it was kind of a loose end, though. Well, uh, yeah. we all we only get what we get from from moment to moment to the. Um, I want to talk about the earthquake, but before we do that, I think the other big sort of sweeping thing, because uh, it, it, throughout the film entirely, there's an awful lot of nudity in this film, yeah. and uh, some would even say needless. There's a scene with Frances McDormand where she just walks well, across the, the shower and, and she's just naked for some reason, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it sort of gives this sort of uh, voyeuristic, raw feeling to the movie. And most famously, there's this argument that takes place between yes. Matthew Modine okay, and Julian Moore. Kind of hard not to talk about it. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a very memorable scene. And I think from both of them, it's an amazingly well-acted scene. But it's a husband and wife are having an argument. And she's so frazzled by the argument that she spills wine on herself. And she takes off her skirt to mm-hmm. clean the stain. And she's not wearing anything from the waist down for the whole scene. It goes yeah. on for like five minutes at least. Um and it's really weird because it, I think, serves to make the audience uncomfortable. <laughs> right? I think so. Well, I, I mean, you can't not notice that she's naked from the waist down. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the compelling drive of the scene isn't about that. They're so comfortable around each other that she can do that. And they're just going to continue having this argument. Yeah, what is the argument about? It's about... Infidelity. Infidelity in this time where all along um, the Matthew Bodine character has known that she had... Done had something, had yeah. sex with this this guy, and he just needed uh, her to admit he, it. And like the argument ended as soon as she confessed all of this uh, and actually admitted that they had sex. But she's telling this entire story without pants on, yeah. And this is her naked in front of her husband, yeah. and so I, I think there there are reasons behind it. I yeah I I was really and I was I, again I was. Kind of in the teenage years watching this thing, and there's a lot of naked women in it. Yeah. And uh, uh, but the adult in me is thinking, like, this is actually how people operate. I mean, they they will walk across the house naked after having a shower, mm-hmm. like Frances McDormand's character. But you don't some people see will that just in movie, we don't we right? never see that in the movie, but we see it in this movie because again, I, I feel like it's hyper realism, mm-hmm. and even that idea I just mentioned, which I'm I'm wrestling with with. Uh, like the payoff to the Chris Penn story and to his character. I mean, that's like life. I mean, there are things that happen and then we have to move on with our lives and there's no, you know, we're all in our own little pocket, just like everybody's in their own little pocket. Like since I haven't mentioned her, Lori Singer and her mother, for instance. Yes. uh, And that's such a tragic story, but there's her mom's living in the past and sort of, sort of trying to relive her own personal glory days so much that she's not really allowing any access for her mm-hmm. daughter to have any kind of glory to time of, for herself. Um, everybody throughout the movie is sort of stuck in their own ruts and in their own mm-hmm. sort of little Chekhovian miseries, right? Yeah. And then at the end, they all have a shared experience. See, well, those who were still alive at that point... The um, earthquake is sort of the, the, the common denominator yeah. that we could cut between and see everybody just has to get in a door frame or hold on to whoever they love. And that one, mm-hmm. that one terrifying life-changing event was shared by all of them. Yeah. Everybody, oh, the rest of them is just your specific little tragedy. But this epic one, they all share. And in that, yes, I think we're going to find that mm-hmm. structure is completely stolen by Magnolia. <laughs> well, well, yeah, we'll get to that in a few minutes. 
and I, I I could probably talk about this thing forever. Yeah. But I also want to get back to the Lori Singer right. story uh, and Annie Ross and uh, and Annie Ross you know provides the music throughout and that she's um jazz singer yeah jazz singer and she kind of scoffs at the fact that her her daughter is a classical uh string player you know, cellist cellist sexiest instrument in the world yeah <laughs> especially in this this film but what what happens is uh a, the next door neighbors to andy mcdowell and um and bruce davidson and and when when he comes back and and Casey has died, and this totally destroys Laurie Singer's character. And she she actually goes to the club. She's never gone to the club to tell her mother, and her mother is very very cavalier. A crying shame. Oh, yeah. Too bad. Life's uh you know life she's sucks drunk. or whatever. She's drunk and she's focused on her rehearsal, and she's a little bit embarrassed that her daughter um, has has shown up and like this because all the people in the club who she spends so much time with, they don't even know that she has a daughter. Yeah. Uh, through kind of side, these side conversations, which Altman is so good at at throwing into uh, scenes like that. So what does this woman do? She kills herself so that her mother will actually experience that kind of loss. Yeah. And then there's so between the two neighbors, there's great tragedy that happens there, but it's a parallel tragedy, and one tragedy leads to the next one. Yeah, you know and. Uh, there's so much deep stuff going on in this movie, yet it feels like such a... He always makes it sound like such a casual approach to filmmaking. Even the simple stories. And, and, it, and it's fun. Apparently his sets were, were yeah. fun to be on. and Not, not in like a goofy... Uh, like this kind of thing and Magnolia as well. These ensemble pieces were uh, kind of taken by uh, Gary Marshall. Uh, again, God rest his soul. When he did Valentine's movies. Day, Mother's Day, New Year's Day, whatever movies, um, which were, were, were not were not places. in the same, <laughs> yeah. but but it was that kind of idea, like the 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 worst approach to this type of a thing. Yeah, and I think it, Gary Marshall's sets, as I understand, were a lot of fun, and he had lots of friends and family members he would put in the movies. Awesome. Um, and he had he had some A-listers that would come and show up, and who always liked working with him because it was very relaxed. Uh, but here, I think it was fun, but they were also creating something that was a genuine work of art. And, and there were no small parts. Even the simplest story, no. the Peter Gallagher story, he comes back uh, from his military mission, whatever it is. He's trying to make good with his ex-wife. And he realizes not only is he not going to make good with his ex-wife, but she fucking despises him. Oh, yeah. like, so he... he he's spraying the med flies. That's yeah. what he's he's doing. Yeah. He... Yeah, that's right. And uh, he just is enacting a petty piece of revenge. He knows that she's going out for the weekend, so he spends the days sawing every item of her house. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. And I still kind of like it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and then in the middle of this, a vacuum salesman shows up and, and, and shampoos the carpet. Yep. And in the, uh, in the original stories, that vacuum salesman was a very major character. Yeah. Now, if you're watching at the very... Very beginning of the film, there's a scene in the diner where Lily Tomlin's working, and she serves uh, the vacuum she, Yeah, she shows up thinking that like Tom Waits, who uh, is not happy with uh, the fisher, the, fisherman. the fi yeah, the fishermen are kind of sexually harassing. Uh, well, they are sexually harassing Lily Tomlin, and he he can't take it because I think he's gonna lose it. Or who knows if he stays much longer? So he runs off 
the vacuum salesman sits down in that spot and then suddenly he's there. Yeah. But if you're not paying attention, you're just like, oh, yeah, some, that's e- some extra walked on. That is something you'll pick up on the third or fifth yeah, time. Through. Yeah, and uh, we're, but, we're but, touching on a half an hour. Yeah, so I think yeah, we I know. Really this is wrap this yeah up. for a three-hour movie. <laughs> it's see, a big see movie. shortcuts. Uh, I, I didn't even talk about, uh, but you probably got the sense. I really, really love this movie, right. and you really love this movie yeah. too. It's fabulous. Yeah, uh, and there's more to be said, but just watch the movie. Watch it. <laughs> now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back. In the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Spectre. There is the story of a boy genius. Willa Catherine, Thomas Kidd, Jean Baptiste Beauclamelier. And the game show host. I'm Jimmy Gator. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Bejar troupe of actors. And the ex boy genius. I'm Chris Donnie Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son. What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him. Do you understand? There's no one else. No one else. The caretaker. Hello. I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm. All right, Paul Thomas Anderson Magnolia. Um, a lot of interesting things to be said about this. He's young and hungry. He's still mm-hmm. in his 20s. He's making these movies. He's already got Hard Eight, and he's already got Boogie Nights behind yeah. him. Now, like I said, you, you see a Scorsese influence in Boogie Nights. The reason I say Goodfellas is I mean structurally, yeah. it is Goodfellas. Complete with the centerpiece, one long take halfway through the movie. Complete with the almost half an hour downward spiral sequence that seems adjacent from the rest of the movie in the third act. Like, you can almost lay those movies next to each other and say, I mean... If one's about porn, one's about, you know, crime. Both but are a business. Both, both are a business. And, and have their rules. And and both have casualties. Yeah, and, <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, it, I mean, I'm not going to take anything away from Boogie Nights. Because I do think it's an entertaining movie. I just think that he took a fucking lot from Goodfellas. And similarly, but I think Boogie Nights is a way better movie. I think I feel similarly about Magnolia in that there's a lot of interesting stuff here. But he nakedly stole from Robert Altman and 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 shortcuts, I think. Um, and the the flaws that I see here that I don't see in shortcuts is that there are p- pieces of the mosaic that I could do without. Hmm. There's no character, and as many of the 22 characters as we were trying to cover as much as we could in our review. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's At no half an char- hour, we barely skimmed them. Honestly, yeah. like even if you took Jack Lemmon out of that movie, I would miss it. Like uh-huh. he, he, Comparatively, he's very small in the movie, but I would miss it. There's stuff in this movie that I could, could really do without, to be quite honest. Um, but you can't deny the ambition of the movie. You certainly can't deny the energy of the movie. And whereas Shortcuts was dealing with subtlety and sort of Chekhovian ennui, mm-hmm. this is aggressive, nihilistic, it sort is. of like in-your-face melodrama. So um, it's much more shrill and aggressive than Shortcuts, and that in a way makes it a more 
more of a spectacle, I guess, arguably, than shortcuts, but it is so nowhere near as deep as shortcuts. In fact, at times, I could say it approaches on shallow. But it's, it's a worthy watch. It's another very, very <coughs> strong entry in Paul Thomas Anderson's career. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it does not kiss the feet of shortcuts okay well, that's my I, opening salvo on magnolia and you look like you're mad there, there, no i'm not mad <laughs> i i pretty much expected this because we talked before and even when selecting this I, I kind of knew the ones that might be we might be in different places on um i think the place i'll start with where, where i don't fault paul thomas anderson for doing what he did with uh boogie nights and with uh magnolia and uh, a little bit with Punch Drunk Love, which I don't know what you if you were thinking. That's his it, Wes Anderson movie, and I feel that was his David Lynch film. Okay. So that's you know, they say until you kind of develop your own style, you should imitate your heroes. Quentin Tarantino made his entire career imitating his heroes, and yes. I don't bitch about him. No, I just I've never really seen. Quentin Tarantino do what is essentially a remake without saying this is essentially a remake. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I don't think it's a remake. I mean, there, there's so many circumstances here that are are, are different, uh, and just it these the socioeconomic place of these characters is way 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 different, uh, with perhaps the exception of John C. Riley's character, who's uh, no, Tom Cruise has money. I yeah. mean, yeah, um, his character has has money, but has a lot of other stuff going on. I'm gonna spend a lot of time talking about Tom Cruise in this in a minute here because um, Tom Cruise is a guy who you mentioned. I mentioned him to people, and if I say anything nice about Tom Cruise, I I get shouted down about you know always. Uh, he has absolutely no talent. Um, I would never say that. This, this, and uh, and maybe I, I'm just a notch, like slight. I always wrestle with what is his best performance. Is it this or Born on the Fourth of July? Born on the Fourth of July. Uh, he was so much the film. Here he is. It is a supporting character, but wow, does he make an impact in every single moment? And early on, I mean, first of all, it's a little bit shocking to, you know, the things that he, his character is saying, Frank T.J. Mackey. Um, but he, he embraces how horrible this man is. And he gives sessions on how to seduce women um, and how to sleep with women and take your power back. And I think that character and some of that stuff with uh, those sessions... Um, in in ninety nine, are kind of like whoa, this is this is out here. I think there are a lot of folks out there in two thousand nineteen that are like this guy, and there 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 are people that are encouraging this kind of behavior, um, and men are feeling that uh, oh, feminism has taken over and women have taken over, and uh, and there are a lot of men that are susceptible to this type of thing, which seems like quite an exaggerated idea when you first see this film that these seminars would be going on. In, how to seduce uh, and use women to gain your power back and how to control women. And you're just like, whoa, this this is probably the most horrible character Tom Cruise has ever played. 
Um, but he's going for it. He was so invested in the role. Um, and he's quite dynamic. And we see all of the dy- how, how dynamic Cruz is in there. But then we get the reason behind why this guy is the way he is and why he is doing what he's doing. And there, there is a switch that happens in the middle part of the film. It happens for a lot of the stories and a lot of the characters um, that uh, was amazing. And you, and you just see this transition in Tom Cruise's face and in his eyes. Um, and the rest of what he does is about as perfect as you can get with screen acting. It is he he should have won the Academy Award for this movie. Well, I guess and with him, <clears throat> several other cast members, Philip Seymour Hoffman being to me the the number yeah. one Philip should have joined Seymour him Hoffman. on a list for Philip best Seymour supporting Hoffman actor. Axe him the fuck off of the screen, Jason. I'm no, sorry to disagree no, no, with you. No. I'm sorry to disagree with you about this, but. Uh, I think he's good in the movie. He got a nomination for it, but I think you're way over. So you have given it to Michael Caine for the Cider House Rules. That was a better uh, no, performance. No, I wouldn't. I, no. I wouldn't. But I think you're overselling Tom Cruise in this. By the way, I would make the same argument for people who say this about Training Day and Denzel Washington. It's so amazing he's able to play a character who swears and is mean. I don't think it's a stretch for him. And by the way, in your list of his best performances, he did not include Tropic Thunder. <laughs> Well, that was afterwards. So, but this was Tropic Thunder was after. I, I mean, no. I, yeah, but this I'm was saying is to me like Tropic Thunder was transformative. Was, was, it was leading you a while into to recognize that it was him, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. to me, that's impressive. I'm not saying I wasn't, think, but I honestly think it's Tom Cruise swearing and yelling, and he's good at doing that. But I honestly don't understand. Yeah, he has finally, eventually, a good scene where he breaks down in front of his dying No, father. before that, the scene with the reporter. Yeah, where he's silently judging her. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Like, but He wants every, to murder her. Every time, because like, she's a woman and she's stealing his power. I get it. Yeah. But every time we cut to him giving those monologues, I get it. I got it the first time we cut to him, and every time we cut back to it, I don't learn anything more. The, it's just, But he comes back to the session there, and he he she got to him so much and everything else that's going on has got to him so much he can't even do his 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 job anymore like like this out of out of nowhere like you're sitting in this session and you imagine this speaker who is like motivating you and all of a sudden he just like Start slamming a table, and I think it's a good performance. For me, it falls short of great. I guess it's my favorite performance in the film, and it's a film that is filled with great performances. Philip Seymour Hoffman gives the performance of the movie, as far as I. What about Julianne Moore? Julian Moore gives the worst performance of the movie. Well, we are on. We are totally okay. I'm officially Um, saying we are on opposite ends of the world here. Okay. Uh, can I give my case? Uh, I want your case first. Yes. When I said that there are things that I could pull out of the movie and would not miss. I love Julian Moore. I it's it's against my better nut judgment to say that she's bad in a movie. She was also not that great in The Kingsman too. Sorry, but it's just a fact. Here's the thing: uh, her entire character as this woman who's married this guy for his money, mm-hmm. but now is riddled with guilt. Yep. is one of the worst written parts in this guy's oeuvre. Anything that he's written, I can't think <laughs> of a character written as poorly. Every fucking second, fucking, fucking, fucking fuck that fucking fucks out of her fucking mouth is mm-hmm. fuck. Mm-hmm. That's her monologue, and I get so tired of her hearing of hearing it. Like all that's all it just sounds like. Oh, here's the fuck lady again. I don't pity her. I don't empathize with her. I don't like like I don't enjoy spending any time with her. She's not and a likable character. And worse than that, oh, for the maybe the first time in Julian Moore's career, I just don't believe her. 
You didn't believe her. I just don't believe her. Oh, I believed her, and I, I thought this was a, a great departure from some other roles that she had played. If she had been excised from the movie entirely, I wouldn't have noticed. Oh, and this I is, we're getting noticed. into the Natalie Portman conversation, conversation before. But and it gets worse. I mean, there are other things. Like, uh, you you needed the monologue from uh, Jason Robards in, 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 in the bed. And this is his last role, and he's playing a dying man. Mm-hmm. It didn't need to go on for ten minutes. It was like they were attempting the monologue that Jack Lemmon gave in in Shortcuts, but it was so shrill and so heavy-handed and so awful. Like it that, relates to so many other characters. I mean, the way it's edited together, you, it's to, squeal. to listen to it... For me, the dialogue really hurts. And Paul Thomas Anderson himself admits he wrote this in one draft. And, you know, it was, it was all done on a dead run. And that shows... Especially in the Jason Robards monologue, and especially I think in anything related with Julian Moore, hmm. I wouldn't say cut uh, Tom Cruise. I like I say, I think he's good in it. I just think people got a little bit out of hand. But Julian Moore, again, uh, there's no entertainment value to her aspect of this movie for me. I got nothing. Oh, from I, her. I would have nominated her for the Academy Award. I think she I gives, would have given it to her. I think she gives uh, my, my my order would be, and and again, lots of people are very good in this film, and we'll talk about some other ones. In a minute here, but to me, Cruz is number one, Julianne Moore's number two, and then Philip Seymour Hoffman. Those those are the three that should have had nominations. Philip Seymour sure. Hoffman does so much while doing so I, much less. I think there's problems in the performances. I don't I think in the filmmaking or the writing. Uh, a little bit with John C. Riley, um, and a, a bit with uh, a little bit with uh, uh, William H Macy, mm-hmm. but. One of the things that I, I kind of work with, it's similar to when I'm watching Shortcuts, is am I supposed to like these guys? Am I supposed to be like looking at, feeling well, pity for, for these guys? Am I like, but people, there are people like this who who will do these things and, and, and think, you know, uh, uh, think that, you know, they're in love and do these grand gestures for love and that, like William H Macy's kind of pathetic speech in uh, in the bar there, that that makes sense. And there's a lot of drinking, just like in in Shortcuts in this movie. Uh, but and, you know what? There isn't. It comes out. They copied the characters. They copied the kaleidoscope. They even copied a lot of the themes. But they have none of the empathy. This is a much more nihilistic movie, I mm-hmm. think, than 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 Shortcuts. And I think that makes it harder to approach because. There's fewer people to anchor with. I think that's why I love so much the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. He's one of the characters who, throughout the whole movie, does nothing that makes me want to hate his guts, and he does it so simply. Like he's such a soft-spoken, patient, mm-hmm. deeply empathetic, emotional person. There's just simple scenes like when the other nurse comes to relieve him, and he says, "No, well, I'm going to see up. this through. I want to see this guy through the but, end." But do you There's know why he's decided short- to do that, though? Why he decided to do it? Yeah, because he wants to see it through to the end. Because because he's he's putting Jason Robards out of his misery. I mean that's well, and he wants to get him in touch with the son, and he's got these other yeah. things going on. Yeah, but he, there's nothing showy about his performance in the way that I feel like there's something very artificial and showy about the Julian Moore performance. I don't think it's artificial. She she is high, like she is so drugged up and high through the entire film. That there, I understand where there are points. The scene in the pharmacy, in particular, uh, where you can say that, like this, this is 
over the top. But it's because she's been going around and getting these prescriptions from all of these different people, which is Hollywood. I mean, that's what happened to Heath Ledger. Mm -hmm. uh, you could argue, I mean, the, the thing that's in my head now when I watch Magnolia is the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman with all these warnings and all this stuff about the, the, the drug use in Boogie Nights and in and in uh, in Magnolia and mm -hmm. the fact that he died in a similar in real type life, of way. In the film, um, yeah. yeah. You know, and his character doesn't die, but in, in real life, that his heroin addiction and all mm -hmm. that, and it was all very hidden. Uh, and that's, that's how, you know, the rich people in Hollywood can go around and go to, okay, you go to see this therapist and get a prescription at the last minute, go to see this doctor. And she does not, uh, she does not know how to handle her, her grief and the guilt. So she, she is using drugs and as she gets more and more drugged up, the more over the top manic. she gets and more manic and we also see that in the scene with the lawyer when she's trying to like get the will changed and she's confessing all of this and and she's crying and it, if if you meet somebody like this you're like wow that is that is nuts but that is somebody who is has a severe drug addiction and i believed her in every moment yeah. of of this uh, but i i do recognize that you know in in one viewing of it, for some you're kind of like, wow, that she is she is going for to the moon and back. I but it didn't bother me. I get that, that she's trying to deliver that, and that's what's on the page. For me, it's just shrill, and I never connected with her. And mm. that's weird because I you, love yeah, Julian you always Moore. Do. Yeah, I know. I love Julian Moore. Uh, not in this movie. Mm. Uh, and again, you, you liked her in Boogie Nights, I'm sure. I, I did like her a lot in yeah. Boogie Nights. Yeah. Um, and, Big Lebowski is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Maude is amazing. See, that one I didn't connect, but I didn't connect with her in The Big Lebowski at all. Yeah, but like, I, I, to yeah. me, that was a more stylized and it points it's a over cartoon. the top. But it's, it's intentionally so. But it's in a cartoon world. Mm -hmm. And I think this wants to be a little bit more in the real world. Uh, and well, we started talking about some But of the it is magic realism. Right? A, it is not hyper realism like, like Shortcuts is. And there's to me, there's a huge stylistic difference here. While, while you can sort of see some overlapping ideas it's an ensemble piece set in los angeles um as you said less characters and mostly in this particular section of los angeles yeah which it's, paul thomas anderson grew up in and knows really it's well one stretch of road that this is all taking place on um and uh, there's a game show being shot yeah. a trivia show and we see this little kid who is just being bombarded with stress because he's about to break the record. And then we see basically a potential for what this little kid's future is going to be in the William H. Macy there's, character. There's a lot of parallel characters in, in, in um, the movie. Yep. They do have duality to the characters, but the movie judges the characters much more harshly. The game show host, who's, uh, I can't remember his name right off the top of my Phil head. Phil Bakerhall. Phil Bakerhall, thank you. Uh, he's been neglectful and terrible with his family his mm -hmm. entire life. Now that he's been diagnosed with a cancer uh, and he only has a few months to live, he wants to reconnect with his family. But everything we learn about him is like, he cheated on his wife, he molested his, his daughter, daughter, and now yeah. that he needs his family, he wants his family back, and uh, he doesn't deserve it. He deserves cancer? Question mark? I, I like Well, and my take on that character, too, and, and maybe it was just because of um, around the same era, I don't remember exactly what what year uh the host of family feud the longtime host of family feud had killed himself mm -hmm. and then you kind of like okay you know these these guys present themselves as very funny and very jovial and great with 
the public and all that stuff on camera. Um, so how how is this like the result of of that you know that life? And I I, I somehow connected because uh, there is a point later on where after a bunch of stuff has been revealed, like he takes out a gun and it looks like he's going to kill himself. There's some other stuff that happens, which we'll get to in a minute mm-hmm. around that time. And I felt that was kind of Paul Thomas Anderson explaining how the other side of that world, uh, what can be happening. And then of course the producer of that game show is Jason Robart's character, uh, who is also a, uh, not a functional father and, and abandoned his wife when she got sick with cancer. And that goes back to the Tom Cruise character, why he, he doesn't take his father's name, why he hates his father so much. And then his mother left him. And psychologically, then he's been abandoned by women. So then... This is all an elaborate This revenge. is all why he has created this system and this program... Uh, and these these seminars saying these horrible things and uh, um, respect the cock, team the cunt. Mm-hmm. Forgive my my French, but that's yeah. the line from uh, is the catchphrase for this particular uh, um, thing that he does. But it, it it all makes sense to me. In but a we, kind and of when it's introduced, like way though, I mean, it's it's not complex, is it? Particularly. Maybe not, but I, I felt what Cruz was doing was very complex. I don't think he had been given roles that were oh that complex. I, I'm not. I was not a big fan of his performance in Jerry Maguire that everybody was flipping o- over know. about. I the best performance in that movie was Renee Zellweger, and she wasn't even nominated. I, know, um, I think often flashy roles get confused with brilliant roles. You know, they give the Oscar to the character, right? As much as the... As but the, the first half is flashy. I don't think the second half of his performance is that flashy. Yeah, we feel sad for him once his dad dies. And he does have a really powerful sort of uh, speech. But it's say. not sentimental, though. It's not sentimental. He's like... He's swearing at his father and he's calling him a son of a bitch. And he's uh, and he's like, I hate you. I hope it, it, it hurts. I hope it's painful. And because it was painful for her, so you and you weren't there. Like it is not a sentimental speech. It is not. This is not a, you know. To me, you're making it sound like a for your consideration type of a, a no. performance, and I, I don't think it is. I guess for me, I never liked him, and that's the that's the key thing that uh, that shortcut succeeds at that McNally uh, you, you, you at. like the people I end that up do terrible things more people even the people who do bad things and, and shortcuts I am empathetic towards in some level I lose my empathy for the game show host I lose my empathy for Julian Moore I lose my empathy for Tom Cruise and thus that makes their their story resolution less impactful so did me. you like the characters in Boogie Nights because they they were pretty different, horrible too I think it's a different animal though I think it's a different animal because I think we're, these we're, are people that he's met. Like he, he is, I think those films were very personal to him. He's setting them in, you know, he's not seeing them in uh, like his last, so some of his last few films have been in London. I mean, I guess, you know, he, he's taken some oh, adapted he's, some he's novels. He's interested like, in repeating himself. And yeah, I respect that no, a lot. I respect no, not, that a lot. No, I, I think there's enough variety. I, I would say Boogie Nights and Magnolia are the, the closest. Mm-hmm. Both very to LA him, movies I, for sure. Both very LA, but I, I feel like they are people in LA that that he knows. Uh, I think some of it relates to uh, Magnolia in particular. 
relates to his relationship with with his father, from what I understood. Uh, there's a, all kinds of great supplementary material with the DVD or the Blu-ray of Magnolia. This great documentary. They don't they don't have um, uh, sort of a commentary track throughout the movie like they, they do with Boogie Nights. But there's a, I think it's an hour and a half long um, making of, which says a lot about at that particular time about Paul Thomas Anderson and and uh, the actors working around him. Um, and some of them got very, very frustrated with him with this picture. I don't think William H. Macy worked with them again. Uh, Julianne Moore didn't work with them again. Philip Seymour Hoffman worked with him lots after this. Um, but he had this rather grand vision, much bigger vision for this film than, than for Boogie Nights. And, uh, and he, he knew that, for example, that speech by Jason Robards He's just in pain at one point saying they didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it based on the initial reviews and initial screenings that, that he had. It was, looked like he was totally destroyed. It was a, like a fairly successful movie. It, it, it was didn't polarizing. Make a ton of money, it didn't make a ton of money. Critics were split, I think. Critics were split. And I, I remember Roger Ebert, I think, had it as his number two movie. And then he had a, a top ten show. Or no, he had the, the worst of the year show and... Joel Siegel, I think, um, put Magnolia on it. Put Magnolia and and Ebert just ripped into him, <laughs> and I feel like I'm more on the Ebert fence and with this film because I, I, I just saw somebody say uh, put out like what's the worst movie you've ever seen and the guy listed Nashville. Was this '99? This was '99. There's no way it's the top ten movie of the year. It doesn't make the top ten in 1999. Uh, no, I, 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 I think it was a late year. release. It was a late release. I'd have to go look back at what my top ten was that year. I think it would be. It would have made my cut for sure. Um, it, it didn't, you know, make my cut for the best of the of the decade. And there was a lot of stuff. Uh, I had two movies from '99 that I would have put on my best of the decade. One of them is close to my ten favorite of all time. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's as good as a few movies, uh, including American Beauty, which won Best Picture. But it is. I. I mean, I, I don't understand anybody who doesn't like this movie. Hmm. I, I, I do not understand, and I don't understand like why people are saying like it's the worst thing they've ever seen or I the worst from that year. I don't think it's a bad movie, but I can absolutely understand. In fact, know people who think that way. Uh, there's a lot of things that that question the, that series of like inexplicable event, events that they set up the movie with the the bibli- yeah the inexplicable seems and to the beg a question or, or or tell you that the movie is leading to a conclusion mm-hmm. which it is not there is no oh my god uh, crazy coincidence thing that happens unless you're going to count the reign of frogs but I don't think that that fits in with the story of the snorkeler in the tree or the three bandits who end up on a street that's named after them, etc., etc. Uh, it's it sets up a lot of pins that it doesn't even try to knock down. And again, they but there are characters who knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. There are characters like that knew like well, the, and the, 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 the little boy keeps asking, "Well, what's the weather like?" Because he suspects that something is. Each of the segments happening. starts with the relative humidity and the air pressure. So, like, yeah. this is coming from mm-hmm. the very beginning of the movie. But it is a rain of frogs, which is you know, I guess has biblical biblical implications. Yeah. And one of the frogs stops the game show host from killing himself, and uh, causes a car accident that. Uh, 
is it Julian Moore ends up in or something. Uh, there's a lot of chain reactions. Well, yeah, that come yeah from she's going to the hospital, and then the yeah, that's right. Just like shortcuts, we have the same thing where we Here's cut quick. to all of our different characters, and they have the same <coughs> experience in all of their chaos and all of the nightmare and all the shit that they've dealt with. This is something that they all experience together, without any of the catharsis that shortcuts but, provide. But the, there, there is catharsis. Some of it is cut from the film. I, I, I know. Um, but all of these characters are, are very lonely, in their own way. They're stuck in their own worlds. They're stuck in their addictions, uh, and they're and they're trying to make their way through life, and. Uh, all these horrible things that they have done and all of their sins are out there and this rain of frogs and kind of like cleanses it, you know. Um, the rain of frogs is a more negative connotation, I would think. That's a... But, at least but after it, you know, th there is this suggestion that um, Tom Cruise is going to be connecting with Julianne Moore because they hated each other. Um and, you know, after all this time that Philip Seymour Hoffman is spending trying to connect uh, and trying to get on the phone with Tom Cruise, uh, she she hangs up the phone. Like, she comes in and she just, just ruins that, that whole thing. But after this death, there's the suggestion that, okay, he's, like, she's overdosed and she's in the hospital, but she's being given a second chance and he's the only person who can go to the hospital and that they're going to connect. And the very last uh, shot and the very last scene of the movie is very important as far as the John C. Riley, Melora Walters story where he's, you know, she is a huge cokehead drug addict because she was a victim of abuse by her, her father. The It's the, a very, very sweet, and, very, very doomed romance that they set up. But, but that it, he's like, get away from me after this date. He's like, could you do, you know, Please don't see me ever again. And he comes back and and she smiles at the camera at the very end, right? That there there is this hope now that's happened after this shared experience versus the Altman film where, oh, the earthquake happened. Oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, there's this kind of dismissal of life. Oh, one person died. Oh, that's not bad. So this wasn't saying, the big earthquake. If you're let's saying, call, let's <laughs> carry on with our breakfast and, and that kind of thing. If you're saying the reign of frogs happened and as a result they're all better people, I'm just gonna have to. I'm not saying they're better. No, I'm not saying they're better people. I don't think they're better people, but some of them may connect after this because they were not. Well, again, this is all stuff you're putting on the movie, and I and I get it. It's fine. Uh, the other reason, and I'm saying like they did a lot of setup without a payoff. There is all I'm saying. I see people who resent that. The characters are all are almost uniformly negative. A lot of people don't like that. And my yeah, favorite like character-wise, yeah. the other reason I think people might not like the movie is, wise up. You know how the big scene that we waited till the end of the review to talk about in Shortcuts with Julian Moore? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the big scene of, the, of Magnolia that we're going to talk about is when every single member of the cast takes turns singing the entirety of Amy Mann's Wise Up. Yeah. The reality is completely broken, and a lot of people find that pretentious. So when you say you can't imagine anybody hating the movie, I think you lack some imagination. Because a lot of people hate this movie, and I can imagine them hating this movie. But I don't hate this movie. Mm -hmm. I just think it's shortcuts on crack. But is it... Are, are people projecting a realistic story onto this? Are they like, doing that, though? Well, like, because the, the frogs falling from the sky is not going to be realistic. The characters singing a song is not going to be realistic. Um... 
all of the the introduction with these these weird phenomenon Ripley's believe it or not stuff at the beginning that's you know yeah that's not uh that's not realistic I think there were some people that thought they were watching a realistic film uh and maybe it it is part of like this relating back to to Altman's shortcuts but it is not a realistic film so when those sequences happen they fit more into the magic realism approach it seems like a realistic story but it is not a realistic story and all these characters are going through these different things at different points on this one day period in in los angeles and um and i was i was fine with it because i i thought he had built up enough interesting stuff when we get to that kind of crisis point and the crisis point for for the characters is when that song happens well Half an hour into a review, I will mm-hmm. just reiterate: we, I like it. Mm-hmm. I do not love it. Yeah, I think we're in different places in this one, yeah. uh, for sure. Uh, I, I, I've always loved this from the moment I saw the, the coming attraction to when I saw it. It, it, I, I had high expectations for it, and then met those expectations, and that rarely happens. Yeah. So, uh, he remains an interesting filmmaker, and mm-hmm. like this was like actually a very worthy follow up to Boogie Nights mm-hmm. in that. If nothing else, it engenders conversation. It does. Right? Where's the coin coming from, eh? Got himself a job. Can't afford it. Can't afford it. Can't afford it. Don't give me that. Ours is to sell or die. Always start the day on a good breakfast. What's rule number four? I don't know. Rule number fucking four, pal! He's just pissing around, keeping me waiting! Sign here. I'm not going. Till you do. You did it! You did it well done! How'd it feel? Did you sell? <laughs> yeah. My knee-jerk reaction when people ask me who my favorite director is is Joel and Ethan Cohen. Mm-hmm. But I love Danny Boyle. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a really safe bet. Like, if I said my least favorite Danny Boyle movie was Trance, like, mm-hmm. it's a really well-made thriller. It's just not up to my level of a Danny Boyle motion picture, personally, right? <laughs> uh, God bless the BBC. Uh, Vacuuming Completely Nude in Paradise what a great is a, title. <laughs> a made-for-television BBC movie yeah. that Danny Boyle did to experiment with his digital camera work, which he was gearing up to shoot 28 days later. And it's like he and screenwriter Jim Cartwright decided, let's do a British version of Glen Gary, Glen Ross, only make it vulgar and dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Timothy Spall, who actually shows up briefly in, in Vanilla Sky. Yes, yeah. Uh, I was, I was uh, going yeah. yeah. uh, Is an absolutely horrible person. <laughs> mm-hmm. He sells vacuum cleaners to people who can't afford it. Really ridiculously expensive layaway plan vacuum cleaners mm-hmm. to poor people who can't afford it. And he is basically showing this new guy the ropes. And the film is about desperation and it's about greed and it's about madness. And it's 75 minutes long and it feels like it's three and a half hours long. Now, that doesn't sound like it's a complimentary thing, but I can say all of that and still say that 
everything that the movie's trying to do, it's succeeding in doing. It's just quite unpleasant. So, I mean, I guess, A, who's your audience for this movie? <laughs> and B, is this a noble failure? Is it a just a failure or is it a failure at all? Where do you land on vacuuming completely nude in paradise? Well, it's funny as you were you were giving your synopsis there. I looked at my notes for this film, and but also could be a companion piece to Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Oh, so yeah, so we, we, we had the, the same idea there. Uh, so we just talked about uh, Magnolia, and you couldn't get behind some horrible people in that. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have trouble getting behind uh, the horrible St Timothy? I despise Spall everybody in this movie. Everybody, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I sometimes when we we get together, I, I just feel like I'm a horrible, horrible person <laughs> because I like these these nasty characters. I I think this is he's not given the lead role in a lot of movies. Uh, a few years ago, Mr. Turner, which had mm -hmm. He had a little bit of Oscar buzz for that, which didn't turn into anything. But Last that was... year I talked about this movie Gothic that he's got an interesting oh, okay. role in, too. I haven't seen that. It's, it's weird. Because he <laughs> he's usually shows up as like the sidekick uh, kind of, and usually a villainous type yeah. of character. He's given different levels in this movie to play. It's a big performance. Yes. And we were talking about Julianne Moore being big. This is bigger than that mm -hmm. in many ways and borderline cartoonish, but... Uh, th this guy is hellbent on being the, the number one salesman. vacuum salesman, <laughs> and he will do anything uh, to do that. And and nobody likes him this job, and you understand why he, that that he's he is such a horrible person, and he feels like they're conspiring against him, so somebody else will win. I mean. You kind of see what's going to happen he's playing a later on. Game. He doesn't but know it, but he's playing it's, it's a rigged playing a rigged game. rigged game. Yeah. And for some reason, when we get to that particular payoff, I, I felt kind of sorry for him. Because I, I didn't... He I'm is, not sure I liked uh, the, you know, the people does. above him. I didn't like his boss that much. No. Uh, I, I, I did the entire time, like, knowing what was happening. And the movie's smart enough to... You, we have this, this person who, who has come in and is working with the computer systems and the internet a little bit more. And we're seeing, yeah, this is... Like the characters in Glengarry, Glen Ross, like they are part of a dying profession. Yeah. This is not going to last much longer, but they're stuck in this competition and in this world uh, and are not recognizing, and he's certainly not recognizing what, uh, what the future is going to be. This world that the Timothy Spall character takes so seriously that his life or death, that is his kingdom, which he will rule, mm -hmm. is only of significance to him and of dwindling significance to anything else in the world with every passing day. It's just shrinking and becoming smaller and smaller. And yes, there is something pathetic about the, the beached whale imagery that we get at the, at end. the end of the movie. Yeah, it's just yeah. this pathetic carcass literally on yeah. the beach yeah. uh, with nothing because he acts like such a high-status character and he's mm -hmm. a bug under the rug. He's yeah. this, this completely low-life thing. Now, I've said and admitted in the past on the podcast that I have problems with uh, movies that are have no likable characters. I did. I was able to get through this movie. I was just wasn't really particularly cheering for everyone, anyone particularly. What about his underling? You don't By the like half, him? Wait, the, the sex scene really threw me off. I have to say, <laughs> was that kind of a that's initiated a little bit more by the guy's wife or yeah, girlfriend but or whatever? Yeah, then we go downstairs and. Can't, 
spalls with the uh, special needs kid and like oh, oh like that oh that I'm sorry that stuff yeah, yeah. that that was that was uh, that was tough like yeah. that. And the, the <laughs> fact, like, I didn't like his girlfriend because, like, she dumped him because he wasn't a good yeah. enough salesperson. Yeah, um, no, I didn't like her, no. And we could see him, you know, feeling guilty about selling these vacuums and knowing that it's a scam, but still participating. Even after his girlfriend leaves him, he still sticks with this job. He but he goes st- back and he talks that other woman out. Like, he's calling that woman. Yeah, he gives it back and he's yeah. just like, you cannot afford to do this. I think he had some redeeming qualities. He did. And but- he wasn't that interested in in being like the whole thing is he's not being true to himself he he wants to be a dj i mean and that's that's his goal and and towards the end of the film he he gets to do that and he eventually gets there the uh, the longer he spends in that environment the less respect i have for him i guess and again i get it it's a hook of the movie the second he says fuck this i quit the movie's over right so Mm -hmm. we're kind of stuck into this but i don't think he was in it for a long time i got the sense it was a short period of time and he's training under this guy and and part of it is to try to slow this guy down because he is the number one salesman here's a weird ancillary and it's a weird because the second time i brought it up in this podcast and it shouldn't be a Mm -hmm. training day oh no i had yeah i had it down here i was about to say something i I had to look to see uh if if it had been influenced by training day in any way they came out the same year right so i doubt it but it, there are scenes which are so similar right. like he, he drops he drops the trainee the Ethan Hawke character gets dropped off at uh, at uh, the girlfriend's house while, while while they have sex yeah. and there's kind of a similar thing that that goes on there I and mean the, the car scenes the deliberate corruption right yep. he's telling him to break the rules but it's okay because everybody and, breaks the rules and finding ways to justify it and like oh okay he's just really good at his job and, and you're questioning the whole time yeah. but in the What's same happening? way uh, I feel that in the training day movie the, the more uh, the there's a Washington character is letting out the line with mm-hmm the uh, Ethan Hawke character, the less respect I have for the Ethan Hawke character for not seeing it. Sort of the similar thing I have Do you think you could actually get away from Denzel Washington's character, though? Could he have said, oh, oh, I'm through. I I don't approve of any of this. Can you drop me at the side of the road? I've okay, decided if you want to, to die, smoke crack with you in your police car. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think he could do that. I mean, <laughs> but, but anyway, I don't think anyway. he could have gone away from that guy any we more than be, this guy could yeah. have. Um, and uh, I... I, I I, I like that this is D- Danny Boyle pace. This was a consistent film. This to me wasn't a, a WTF movie uh, because, as I said, at this point uh, he's experimenting for his next big film, but he didn't really have a train spotting type of film until 28 Days Later. There was a, there was a lull of a few years in there, um, so this is him getting work, and he's he's not going dramatically different from. Uh, his vision in other in other movies, I, I felt this uh, th- this looked like his film, particularly early on, and it, it moves at such a ferocious ferocious pace, like all of his films do. That maybe the exception being uh, Steve Jobs, but right. but even then, uh, you could tell it's his film. It's got momentum to it. Yeah. Um, I think my big beef with the movie is not the. Uh, course characters or the uh, unlikability of some of the players mm-hmm. i am worn out by the style are you it's got more shaky cam than blair witch like it, it, it <laughs> really is, I, I didn't notice no, it there's a lot it bother of, me it's, i mean they're trying to sort of affect the manic energy mm-hmm. that propelling propelling the movie and that is like the broken brain that is the timothy spall character mm-hmm. i get it 
but all of that the quick cutting and the, the spazzy camera made the 75 minutes seem so much longer like i was shocked that it was an hour and 15 minutes long it felt long to me. See, this is where we're, we're and I wasn't sure if we would disagree on this, but right. uh, it, it sounds like you're describing the Penn and Teller film right. <laughs> uh, from oh, my no. review. And and to me, there's usually when, the, when, when we're doing the list and there's these movies I haven't seen before or I haven't heard that much about, mm-hmm. there's one which is just, to me, so dreadfully awful that right. I, I, <laughs> I do not want to ever... Touch it, yeah. Yeah, and that was Penn and Teller. Right. And this one was to me the diamond in the rough. I I think people should seek out this film. I liked it a lot, and I was, um, it was in the middle of of watching the six films. Uh, I was like, this this is really cool. I I like this from start to finish. It's it's vicious in a very short amount of time. It's concise. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like Glengarry Glen Ross. I mm-hmm. love the characters in Glengarry Glen Ross. They're horrible people in that one as well. I like. I seem to like movies with horrible people, and it, <laughs> and I can sort of get my get around the fact that if I was to deal with them in real life, yeah, I would not be happy at all, but I, I can get behind them in a film. And I think I've said it before, and this is true for this movie and probably Magnolia, which we just talked about it. I appreciate it when you're not yelling at me as a movie mm-hmm. and Magnolia yells at you. And this movie screams, <laughs> right? Uh, I still like it a lot. I think the only thing I really would disagree with you is that I don't think it has as wide an audience as maybe you. If you like dark comedies, you said Penn and Teller's a dark comedy. Again, well, Penn and Teller has a very narrow uh, audience as well. Mm -hmm. But I would say, A, if you're into Danny Boyle, you have good taste in directors. Of course, give it a look. Uh, If you understand what we're talking about when we say Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross with like Requiem for a Dream Treatment, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Then if that makes sense to you, check out this movie. But like, if you're wanting to watch something with your mom and dad when you're visiting them, or, or if you're like uh, probably not yeah. putting in something that is a comedy in quotation marks, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to win as many people over. This is sort of more of an art house experimental Danny Boyle, and you know what? I'll take as many of them as he wants to make. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I don't think it's for everybody. Like the Danny Boyle movies that are for everybody are like you know Slumdog Millionaire or or, or, or Millions. Or, you or know, yeah, you know, Steve those, Jobs to a certain extent, yeah, but not completely. There are Danny Boyle movies that are just accessible to. Train Spotting is not accessible, no, really. It's, no, no. it's <laughs> his most famous film, but it's not. Excuse me, but hey, I, I like that he was testing the digital camera work before people were mm-hmm. really catching it on. And yeah. like, uh, I do think 28 Days Later is both the responsible for a renaissance in both digital filmmaking and zombie filmmaking. Yes. So. Yay, Danny Boyle. I would never tell anybody to not watch a Danny Boyle movie. All I'm saying is is that I think the audience for this movie is a little bit narrower than maybe you're suggesting. <laughs> but if, I mean, people who are listening to this podcast, because we're probably on hour three, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, love movies. Yeah. And for those who love movies, I think you're going to really enjoy this film. And if you don't have like the, the moral qualms to spend 75 minutes with oh, yeah. some pretty horrible people, uh, I, don't, I, I think... I, I, I would agree with you, Magnolia. There there are more horrible people and uh, than there are horrible people in this. Yeah. I I, 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 I kind of you know I it the was in the most exciting performances. So long, really. Spall was so good. I, I <laughs> it was if this had been uh, had a like a, a wide theatrical release, he he may have found himself in like at least an independent movie award conversation here because yeah. uh, it is so big. Uh, like the great Julianne Moore's performance in Magnolia, uh, 
to be able to maintain that through an entire film, something that's that intense, uh, no, is I very difficult it. to do. Like, um, spoilers, he drops dead at the end of the movie, right? His character just basically he, he falls has over dead. And you believe it, just like the energy it would take to maintain that level of crazy. Oh, yes. <laughs> His heart would just yes. pop like a balloon. But the man himself doesn't always look that healthy. No. You know? so, so the actor, Sweating. for the actor to be able to, to pull off this kind of performance is amazing, too. And, and this was before some other roles that he's had, which uh, gained a little bit more prominence. Yeah. And yeah, I, obviously, I recommend the film. Like, yeah. I think if you're halfway into film, you should just watch everything that Danny Boyle does. Like, yeah. if you consider yourself a fan of movies, yeah. Open your eyes. We've got a situation here. What is this? I didn't do this. You've been charged with murder. Boo! Oh. No murder. These people are dangerous. They want to steal my life! There's an explanation for all this, David. So there's this weird bumpy history that we have for uh, Cameron Crowe. There was a while there where he was like the go-to. He was the heir apparent to John Hughes in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Uh, like people have reevaluated Say Anything as a stalker movie now, but I still think its <laughs> its heart was in the right place, people. Um, Jerry Maguire may be a schmaltzy date movie, but it's kind of the schmaltzy date movie. There's a bit more <laughs> to it than that, but <coughs> me. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Singles is the 90s <laughs> Fair enough. and almost famous is one of the best movies of that fucking decade right i have friends who are musicians they've been in bands they've, they said everything about that film is authentic yeah problem is since then it's been pretty spotty for me mm -hmm. like even when i give them a pass with like uh the the we bought a zoo one which yeah. i thought was harmless it was a harmless it, it movie. Was it was just nowhere near the level that he'd been in the past. Like an Elizabeth Town hurt my teeth, and I didn't even watch Aloha. <laughs> so. I haven't watched Aloha. I, I got behind Elizabeth Town probably, <laughs> and I recognize else. that maybe I'm the one. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I liked a lot of that stuff. I think he was the, what he had done in other movies before amplified uh, quite a bit. I had seen some version of the Kirsten Dunst character in his movies before and maybe done a little bit better. But I liked a lot of stuff in Elizabethtown. I was, I was still a fan of it. It's a debated, but, it's a debated but it's not one that everybody, almost famous, ended up on almost every top ten list that particular year. Uh, he, won, he won the Academy Award for the screenplay. screenplay. It's an amazing movie. Um, <laughs> and it's... I, Kate Hudson yeah. has... That's the... To me, the only performance she's ever given that uh, was, you know, that worthwhile. But, and, and fairly speaking, though, the dividing line between insanely successful Cameron Crowe and spottily successful yeah. Cameron Crowe is this movie. Mm -hmm. It's Vanilla Sky, and it's clearly the odd one out in his in his oeuvre. Right? It's the most out there. It's a remake of an Alejandro Amenabar film, mm -hmm. uh, and he saw it and it blew his mind. I think Tom Cruise showed it to him. His yeah. mind was blown by it, and he wanted to 
create that experience for an American audience. And he wanted to be the guy to deliver it. And, you know, everything we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a bold and ambitious thing to do. And, I mean, he calls it more of a remix or a cover song version of a, a, a Yeah, because that's as how he thinks. to uh, mm -hmm. a, a, a remaking the yeah. movie. It, strangely, I keep on making weird <laughs> pulls of films. It reminds me of the Kevin Smith movie, Jersey Girl, oh, okay. in that Kevin Smith was trying to make a late stage John Hughes movie, but Kevin Smith is much better at being Kevin Smith mm -hmm. than John Hughes. I like where his heart's at and I get what he's trying to do here, but this is far afield from Cameron's comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he's a right fit for the material. There's really great scenes in this movie, and there's really great ideas in this movie, but I don't think it's a really great movie. To, to me, this is this is the one I, I was alluding to. That to me, like the WTF <laughs> for this director and this material. Um, and I remember being thrilled this movie came out, and I was probably first weekend or so went to see it. And it ended up on my worst list that year. Yeah. Uh, Has your opinion changed at all? <laughs> I I may have been a little bit softer on because I I refused to see it again right. and I and I watched it for this and I was maybe a little bit softer. Now all along, even with the first time I saw it, with all of my frustration and hatred and venom towards this thing, which I thought was so arrogant and so over the top and. Um, uh, and ridiculous maybe that's what the people who feel that hate magnolia are all about is the way i was feeling about vanilla sky i do want to do a shout out to cameron diaz i think this is she was this, really this may be her best performance yeah i was shit talking her for gangs of new york recently so yes yeah. i will back I, I heard that podcast and i <laughs> and i was thinking oh i get to review one where we say some nice <laughs> things about because she's another one that she gets uh like shat on quite she's a bit inconsistent i will agree but mm -hmm. she doesn't necessarily suck you just have to be careful how you cast her yeah. you know? and if nothing else cameron crow does know how to cast a film i agree and he can get some pretty good performances out of uh, kate hudson I, I wanted her to win the Oscar for Almost Famous. And I, I think Diaz, probably because of her celebrity, wasn't nominated for this movie. That's the only nomination I think I would have given it. It got nominated because Paul McCartney did a song for it just because he, Cameron Crowe has all of these crazy connections in the music world and he can get... He grew up writing for Rolling Stone. He can get Paul McCartney <laughs> to yeah. create and, and write and uh, perform an original song for his movie. Um, I didn't think it was songs all that, that interesting. but Although I will give a shout out to the soundtrack. I own it, and there's some really great stuff on it. Yeah, because and because of um, who he is, he can get anybody, and he can get the, 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 the rights to terrific songs. I agree there is some, some great music in there. Um, but there's points, and in in, in you're, you're watching this thing, and it's, it's kind of like, uh, as I said, the, the very first half of the Tom Cruise's Magnolia performance... I thought that was very much in his wheelhouse because uh, he's a charismatic character. Um, and I, I, I felt like the first half of this film um, was a Cameron Crowe film, even like in a cliche-ish way because there's this uh, uh, Penelope Cruz and Tom Cruise have this 
this wonderful date after he throws this party and um, and the music that plays is uh, uh, is a Peter Frampton song that is used in every single romantic comedy <laughs> for the coming attraction. Uh, and I see, oh, this is really, really. On uh, the nose. I yeah, it's it, but it it, it it felt kind of like I'd, it took me out of the movie for a moment. It's like, oh, that's such a cliche cliche song to use for this particular scene. But I don't know if he's the one who kind of got that going because. All along, he's kind of put the right music with the right scenes, and then a lot of people will go and, and copy from him. Unpopular but, opinion? But then, yeah. <laughs> uh, unpopular opinion for me, too. Uh, Penelope Cruz. Or, yeah, Penelope, Penelope Cruz, yeah. She the two plays the same character uh, in the original Spanish-language film. Did she? Yeah. She okay. played the same character, so she's doing this again. Mm-hmm. Um, she's incredibly beautiful. Mm-hmm. And she has the thick Spanish accent, and I don't want to hold that against her. But it's interesting. She's played. It's interesting just from an acting perspective to essentially play the same part twice. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she's super strong in the movie. No. I think part of it is that there's a lot of these sort of whimsical Cameron Crowe lines that are just sort of, just sort of be gently sort of lifted off, and she's performing them. And there's just something mm-hmm. off about her cadence and the delivery. You can see how that would work. Uh, and if it just came out slightly differently there is something so important about the movie that we love how in love these two people are and you have to buy it and I didn't, and I didn't buy it no no okay good yeah we're in the and same page that's a problem because no. that's going to be a linchpin mm-hmm. to get us into the rest of the movie here's the other thing that was interesting just and I don't know what came first the chicken or the egg here um, I, this was a point when Penelope Cruz was Tom Cruise's girlfriend, girlfriend. Yeah. you know. So that was the other reason that she was in the film. Now I don't know if they met on the set That's what at I the assumed, same at the same time as the Nicole Kidman divorce was happening, mm-hmm. and 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 that's how. It, but they really did not have chemistry on screen yeah. together. Isn't that strange? A lot of times when couples are in movies together, it, it doesn't the, work. Halle Berry did that shark movie with her boyfriend, and there was just like they were playing a couple, and there was just nothing. No, happening. Uh, but but others can and. You yeah. know, actually, Cruz and Kidman were good on screen together. Uh, we should do a little bit of plot because I'm yeah, yes, that's right. We're Sorry, we're I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, no. Tom Cruise is a spoiled, rich, selfish playboy. I don't think there's there's a Bruce Wayne kind of figure. Okay, uh, even his friend Jason Lee, I think he's just consistently shitty too throughout this movie. But it's supposed to be fun and charming. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's another one of these movies where the main character is a spoiled, rich person who's you know wants and needs we're supposed to really care for anyway uh he has what he has described as a you know uh friend with benefit relationship with this cameron diaz mm-hmm. character but when he meets with and instantly falls in love with penelope cruz by stealing her away from from, him, from jason, jason lee's Lee. character yeah uh, i know i have everything but let me take what you have yeah uh <laughs> again hard to hard to like him you don't know why jason lee seems so friendly about it um but Cameron Diaz's character sees that he's made a connection with another woman, gets him into her car, and she crashes the car, killing herself and disfiguring him. Uh, he can't put the pieces back together, and then all of a sudden the movie seems to just devolve into madness. We find oh, out madness, yeah. we find out that he has injected himself into this basic stasis and is being fed this lucid dream, and that things are going wrong. The dream is starting to fall apart. So they can either replug him into another dream, 
or he can choose to wake up by taking a very literal leap of faith. And this is all accomplished in very clunky ways. Ooh. Like Tilda Swinton shows up and delivers some exposition, right? <laughs> There's a lot of that. A <laughs> lot of exposition. This endless, uh, towards the end of the film, this endless elevator ride where everything is explained to the audience. And I keep on talking about <laughs> editing things out of movies. Here's another example. Mm-hmm. I love Kurt Russell, by the way. Yeah. Do not just think this is me talking shit about Kurt Russell. If we took Kurt Russell out of the film entirely, would the film be missing anything? Well, and, and for a while there, you're watching the movie and you're thinking, Kurt Russell's, like, this is, this is not real. Like, why was this guy spending this much time with Tom Cruise? There is actually a reason for it later Tom on. Tom Cruise needs someone to talk to. Um, but <laughs> that's I, I, I would have uh, liked two-thirds of the movie to be cut out. Um this, because because I, investigation I was, I was so it's not a murder investigation because no murder took no. place. A bunch of imaginary stakes. Uh, him telling him the Kurt Russell character like either his conscious or a representation of his fear, depending on the scene as required. Should he be telling him to jump or not to jump? Does the movie even know? Right? And I think in Cameron Crowe's head, the idea is we were supposed to be washed. This stuff washes over us and it blows our mind and we think about it and that's it. And that's but, enough. But he tells and, us what to think. But exactly. Yeah, he tells terrible. us what to think. And first of all, I'm of the case that I don't think that's enough. I think you should have, even at least for you personally, uh, some kind of plaster man, some kind of idea that you are trying to express. And, uh, you know, if not, then you're just making an absurdist film. Mm-hmm. It's masturbatory. It's for you only. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is, I know that Oh, I don't know. I've never met the man. But I like to think that Cameron Crowe's one of these guys who's got a heart as big out as all outdoors. Mm-hmm. You, know? you listen to some of the lines that he has in his movies that, if mishandled, are the worst kind of tacky schmaltz. Yes. But with his gentle touch, with the right cast, he can absolutely get you in the soul with it, right? This is, like I said, this is not where you belong. This uncomfortable no. nether nightmare. Is this real? This is not Cameron Crowe. No. Cameron Crowe deals with the heart. I'm sorry, dude. You should be working for the Hallmark Channel. I'm sorry to <laughs> yeah. be dismissive, but this is not where he belongs. And is it fair for me to judge him so harshly for making a movie outside of his comfort zone? Maybe. You, take, you take a risk. I do not I guess, like this movie. <laughs> I, I, I like directors who take risks, but this one was not worth, worth it at all. I feel like he was starting one of his own movies and then he he wanted to do something wildly different. Uh, as I said, it's not really a true representation of the original film, which I haven't seen, uh, to be honest. Um, yeah, at one no, point, at one point there's a, because they, to show how powerful or how uh, uh, well-connected the Tom Cruise character is, much like Tom Cruise himself, yes. Steven Spielberg makes a cameo, cameo. appearance, as do several other uh, people throughout um, yeah, I noticed Michael Shannon in the movie. I totally Michael, forgot. He yeah, was yeah, he was that that guard, yeah. and uh, and that was kind. Of, but nobody knew who he was yeah, that's at the time. Why I don't we remember. often will will see these actors who now are you know very prominent um, in in earlier works, and but, and so I I, I think that suggests he's good at casting because you know he, he spotted he Michael Shannon before the rest of us. <laughs> what what is what is strange about it? And I think Tom Cruise can handle Cameron Crowe's. Material and he 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 did 
um, a serviceable job. Some people who love Jerry Maguire will be really mad at me for saying a, a serviceable job. I I didn't by a long shot think it was Tom Cruise's uh, best performance. But it's interesting to me in this film that uh, Jason Lee, who I, we had to rip apart with the Stephen King movie uh, the first time I sat that down with you, script, which dude. was the script. That, that was, was not Jason script. Lee. <laughs> but Jason Lee is totally convincing in every scene in this film. Uh, a movie about his character and about him would have been really interesting. Cameron Diaz works completely because she has that. It's funny. She got to kind of play the stalker version of in the something about Mary characters. Right. When all those guys were stalking her character and that she got to play that type of a character here. And um, she does a great job of it being kind of flirty and then kind of, fun but then it starts to get like really really kind of dark and serious and we will we lose her though she yeah. we don't get to see her for the second and third acts of the movie and that's an enormous loss because she is the most interesting character and i just spent uh so much time praising tom cruise and <laughs> throwing smoke up his butt about uh magnolia. magnolia and getting mad at you because you uh <laughs> you it. you sneered a little bit at his performance you know you didn't hate it but you he is so bad in this movie. He is so over the top. There's a scene where he gets drunk and he's wearing this creepy mask, which is supposed to, you know, there's reasons for that. I I hated his performance in this movie so much. I couldn't get behind that. Then the story went into these weird directions and I, I, I just thought it was it was so uh um it was it was such a vanity project. And then we have these long scenes where everything is explained compared to some of the other directors uh, who uh, show but don't tell Altman, Lynch, we're going to get to in a few minutes here. Um, th this is such a bad screenplay. The beginning had potential. The first act was great. Uh, and there were perhaps the characters and the actors to, to make something out of this. But it is such an awful movie. And I'm almost going back to my first viewing of it because I was I'm, mad. <laughs> because I was so mad. I wasn't as mad this time because I knew what was coming. And I was kind of That's watching, trying thought. to figure it out a little bit more and give it maybe. I thought, well, maybe I misjudged it. I, I, I do recognize that when I'm younger and seeing these movies and especially when yeah. I was in kind of the college age, I thought I knew it all. And now I know I, that I know nothing. Um, you get dismissive a little bit. You sometimes. know. I just re-reviewed What Dreams May Come, which is a movie that I talked a lot of shit about mm -hmm. back in the day, and I've softened on it considerably. I don't think it's an amazing movie, but like no. there was a time I would have kind of rolled my eyes and maybe made fun of it, and I don't think I feel that way anymore. I would also say that I've softened a little bit on Vanilla Sky, but not enough that no. I would encourage anybody to watch it. No, don't it. watch it. No, There's a really cool scene at the very beginning with Tom Cruise running through empty Times Square. I like the idea of the skyscraper above the clouds like conceptually is kind of interesting mm -hmm. uh there's some cool visual stuff to the movie but mainly i was bored i remember the first time i watched the movie i was with, with you i was kind of being actively bucked off and pissed off by the movie like i was aggravated this time i was just bored and as far as me doubling down with the, the tom cruise i'm gonna back you up here uh Mutual friend of ours, Sky Brandon, was yeah. on the show. We talked about Shakespeare, and we talked about there's nothing worse than watching an actor perform Shakespeare when they don't understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. That's what this performance feels like to me. 
This feels like Tom Cruise has no fucking idea what's going on from scene to scene either. He's he a producer of the movie. He doesn't understand the screenplay either. He just knows it's brilliant, right? Yeah. So he's just delivering the lines yeah. and the context is lost. Uh, yeah, you can skip Vanilla Sky and that's unfortunate because I, I keep on hoping that Cameron Crowe is going to come out with this next movie that's going to remind everybody what a amazing filmmaker mm-hmm. he's. It's been a while. And, and I even want to sort of like because there was a lot made of that emptying Manhattan and having him drive around and he's alone in Manhattan bit yeah. and, and how they, they filmed pulled it there off. and how they pull, they pulled that off. Kind of like the equivalent, it was La La Land with the, the, the freeway uh, yeah. musical sequence there. I mean, I, I introduced the dream idea, but I, I think it was just a gimmick. Yeah. Like, I can't even give credit for that. I don't think that's all that interesting. The only thing that was interesting is I just just got back from New York and I was there and I was kind of like, oh, okay, look, all the streets are empty. I'm not used to seeing them empty, but that's Low that's all praise. I got from it. Ter- terrible praise. movie. Is there anything else you want to say about it? It's Benoist a terrible guy? movie. Don't see it. All right, David Lynch's three-hour opus, Inland Empire. Uh, I guess it's the last feature he's made. I mean, I'm not really counting the new Twin Peaks. That's not uh, a feature, no, yeah, it's a TV show. Yeah, he's been show. doing a lot of music videos and these weird art wank short films and stuff like this. Um, Laura Dern is an actress who gets cast in a movie which has an infamous, uh, infamous history. It was attempted previously. She has an unsettling encounter with her neighbor. She starts shooting the movie. That's about the first hour, hour, 15 minutes of the movie. Then it becomes unstuck in time, sort of (laughs) pilgrim style. Uh, And uh, we are treated with uh, characters who are inconsistent, moving backwards and forwards in time. Some scenes that actually happened, some scenes that were actually just being shot for the film. The actors and the directors themselves seem to be confused and conflated by it. We cut away to scenes of animated bunnies having talks over a shrill laugh track. And it all ends with the actors dancing and smiling at the camera. If David Lynch isn't just actively fucking with us at this point, like I... I, I'm sorry, I feel like we've had this argument before, but this is garbage. This is garbage. All I can say is that Laura Dern is an incredible emotional powerhouse and that she could sell almost anything to anyone. But she can't sell me this bill of goods. This is everything I hate about Lynch in one movie. This is the least interesting parts of Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive squished into one movie that goes on for three fucking hours. I hate it. First of all, I want to congratulate you <laughs> on your synopsis because I was trying to figure out how you're going to be that's able to. That's the best to... I could do. Bro. Well, that that's great because I'm not sure many people could piece that together. Um, 
we've got into it over Lynch. We've never actually <laughs> reviewed a Lynch film. It's interesting that it's, it's this film. Um, and this was not to torture you by by making you watch this this thing again. I, I was just I was really interested in reviewing Magnolia and Shortcuts. To be honest, that's yeah, what yeah. was my uh, reason Into, for. Yeah. And I saw Vanilla Sky in there, and I was like, I can't wait to just rip that thing apart again. <laughs> get get my soon. get my revenge there, and my seven fifty or whatever I paid uh, back in the day. I but wanted see, I, to like all of these movies. By the way, I didn't mm-hmm. come in saying I want to hate Inland Empire. Mm-hmm. I knew it was going to be a bit of an uphill battle. I knew I have my problems. You, you saw it before, right? I have. This was my yeah. second pass. This is my second time seeing it too. Uh, it, it was it was so funny and I'm, I'm just trying to think where I was. I think it was... What year did it come out? Somehow, the release of this movie uh, escaped me. Uh, I like to 2007, think... 2007, sorry. 2007. Okay, so... Doesn't make any sense. I was working here in Saskatoon. I, I don't know how I missed this movie being available, or why I didn't know that it existed until well into its uh, DVD release. Right. Uh, or else, because I was such a huge fan of Mulholland Drive, I and in some of his other films, I would have uh, definitely s- yeah seen it in the theater. And I couldn't find it. It's a hard movie to find. Uh, and this is one where I I would definitely say I'd. As much as I was promoting uh, vacuuming, uh, completely nude in paradise, and and see it if you're a fan of movies, I would say it's an even smaller demographic that would be chasing down Inland Empire. I happen to be in that demographic. I finally found it at the public library, and I watched it, and and I I did recognize of the, the of the three three hour plus films that we're looking at that this one felt the most like a three hour film. Um, because it, it kept going on and it get more and more inexplicable uh, as, as deeper and deeper. And I know some people with the rabbits uh, business talk about the whole thing being a rabbit hole that we go down. Um, Very clever. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it's all that clever. <laughs> but that's uh, and I, I think to a certain degree, like Lynch does not particularly care about a traditional narrative. And he himself, he's a visual artist. He also, as you mentioned, dabbles in music. He has some, you know, he has some albums out there uh, with his name, and he collaborates with a lot of musicians. Uh, we saw them the last season of, uh, of Twin Peaks at the end of each episode. Uh, he would get some amazing people. Eddie Vedder did a, did, did a song for, for, for the show. Um, so he's in, he's in the world of music and almost all of the arts, uh, I'm not sure dancing is his forte as much, and we we, we saw some choreography in in this. Uh, he's always had a, some movement in there, but it's always been kind of like this really um, creepy type of movement that his characters have, or like they're all really stoned and they're moving slowly. <laughs> that wasn't the end of the movie, which uh, has a all of these women who have been basically trampled on by society are, are kind of lifting their spirits by singing this, uh, this song. And, uh, you're right. It, it is, it is weird. Uh, you, you're off put by the cast in Magnolia singing, uh, their song. Wise up, yeah. Wise up. But, uh, 
but this one is is much much worse. It's less earned than Magnolias, and I would argue yeah. Magnolias is not earned at all. And I, <laughs> I thought they earned that moment, but uh, I, I understand a lot of people would not. This this was a strange way to to end a very very strange film. I think you can get through possibly the first forty five minutes or the hour and kind of piece together a bit of a story here. But it doesn't open with the Laura Dern character. I mean, it opens with, we right. see that rabbit family uh, and, and we see a bunch of other strange happenings. And uh, I'm trying to remember uh, the name of the actor that he, he works with a lot. She's part of Twin Justin Peaks. Um, no, no, he shows up later. But the one who's the neighbor oh. uh, and um, the actor isn't Eastern European herself, but she's playing an Eastern European character and she's coming over to... Uh, to say hello to Laura Dern's character and yeah, the neighbor. I can't see it here. The, the the names are all really arty. Visitor number one, lost girl, phantom. Yeah, <laughs> that's when the story will get started. When this neighbor comes over and she's really she introduces this idea of uh, of this time shift that's happening, and that uh, tomorrow you, you'd be sitting you, over. Yeah, there. you'll be sitting over there and. You're going to be killed, and you're taking up. You know, you're 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 going to have a, this relationship with a man who isn't your husband, and that's going to have consequences, and all that. And 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 we watch that happen, and we get the idea of the Justin Thoreau character that he screwed over a bunch of women, and and so that's where I, I feel like after she has uh, got into that place, and then there's a real turn in in his. Uh, in his character after they have sex then she her that's when the movie gets really really strange and she's in this house in that pink house and then there's a bunch of women who uh some of them are are, are prostitutes uh and they've, they've all been treated uh as objects and kind of used and thrown away by men so i i feel like he's he's trying to make some sort of a feminist statement in here Knowing Laura Dern's politics, uh, she really likes working with Lynch. She comes back time and time again. I think there must be something to Lynch that... Lynch gave her her career. Yeah, she credits him with that. Blue Velvet was a huge movie. It was one of her first movies of David Lynch, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. And Wild at Heart was huge, too. Yeah. Yeah. Why wouldn't you go back? But she also comes from a a Hollywood family. So, I mean... I mean, sometimes that can be a double-edged sword. But I, I think she would have had an in anyway... It's if weird. she thought that he was a misogynist or that that he was didn't have anything to say, I don't think she would go back and, and keep working with him in the way that she has. I'm sure she doesn't think she's a misogynist or has anything cruel to say, but I wonder if she would be able to answer what this movie was about if I asked her. She stars in the movie, and I bet you she wouldn't be able to give me a clean answer. Mm-hmm. And I find that counterfeit. Mm-hmm. I genuinely do. If you're going to take three hours of my time mm-hmm. and you're not going to tell a story, can you at least make me feel something? Can you have some kind of a point? Uh, it's funny because you've been talking about it for almost 10 minutes and I don't even know if you like the film. You seem to be defending it. But I'm defending like, it, but I also recognize I'm not going to be in, embracing it in the way that I embrace Lost Highway, Blue Velvet, uh, uh, Mulholland Drive. And it was, a, to me, a strange follow-up to Mulholland Drive. Some people said that there were similarities uh, to Mulholland Drive. Thematically, there I, are. I think the there's, idea... there's kind of like, we have this story that's going along that makes sense, but then it turns really, really dark, and we see the other side. 
the ugly supernatural Hollywood system. Yeah. That's almost like it's the same world that he's borrowing from Mulholland Drive. And the rejigging of time and character, he seems to be, again, stealing from Lost Highway. So he's repeating himself. But he does it in Twin Peaks. He does that. He, yeah. he has done that yeah. forever. Here's my thing with this, why I think it's terrible. I think that at any point in this movie, you could insert 30 seconds of anything. You could insert a black and white image of a dog shitting on a carpet. <laughs> you could show uh, the tide coming in with the frame flipped upside down. You could show the moon with an eyeball on it. And everyone would just stroke their fucking goatee and say, boy, Lynch. There's no through line. There's nothing to hang your hat on. It's uh, dreamlike madness and crazy images can get you so far. And like all David Lynch movies, there are moments that are weirdly profound or powerful mm -hmm. by themselves, but don't seem to have any real narrative piece in, in, in the movie or piece at all in the movie. There's a really creepy thing with this chick and a screwdriver yes. in this movie, which by itself seems like a really terrifying short film that just we get flutters of throughout this. Mm -hmm. But yes, I do believe you could literally cut any piece of footage and put it in any 30 seconds of this movie and it would, you know, it wouldn't affect the movie and no one would question it or could question it. Mm -hmm. It means so much, Jason, that it means fucking nothing. And uh, I, I resent it. I resent that like people mm -hmm. will like sit there, watch this thing that means nothing and goes on forever and then stand up and clap. It seems false to yeah, me. I, I, and I didn't stand up and clap with this one. I, this one was not... I, I, I might argue other... And you, and you might disagree with me on this one. Other than his attempt at Dune, mm -hmm. I'd say this is his second worst film. Uh, and it feels like he's just... Un, you would, you unleashes... Would say that, you un, say unleashes. Dune is worse than this? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I thought it was a horrible, horrible movie. And it was not... I But I... I think Lynch was, it was, a, it was, would, it was a four, he was hired. It wasn't a movie that he necessarily wanted to do. Right. Or like, I, I know less about, I know uh, there were caveat, lots of people that wanted to yeah, it's do that been movie. It's 30 years since I've seen it. Yeah. But right now sitting here, I would say that this is David Lynch's worst movie, but maybe if I watched Dune again, I would. Yeah. This last time I saw it, I was just, <laughs> I, cause I, I would hear about Dune and um, what a disaster this this thing was! And I thought, well, I I've heard that about some films. I watched like um, Heaven's Gate, the yeah. four hour movie, which apparently bankrupted a studio. Yeah. I will watch these things, and like they're not as bad as they're made out to be. Waterworld is not as bad as it's made out to be, yeah. um, and it was as bad as it was made out to be. Uh, this was consistent David Lynch film. I I I don't I think he thought after Mulholland Drive he could do whatever he wants. I, I, I feel like he, in many ways, he, he makes films, and he hasn't made a, a film since, and he's not somebody who's like every two years producing something. Thank God. I think it's, an, <laughs> I, I think he, that's where he got known, that's where he gets the money to be able to do other things that he uh, would rather do in, in other arts and experiment with different things. He, to me, this is, he's a visual artist, uh, in some ways, you can might argue that he's a poet. I don't know if you like abstract art, but I feel like he is putting this stuff together, and then he walks away from it and and says, "Now it's up to with the poem, it's up to the reader to interpret this." 
with the audience. It's up to them to interpret what's going yeah. on. He has introduced some I agree, themes. But have your own interpretation. And there's some don't, great great Don't even scenes. tell me what your interpretation is, Lynch. Just have one. This is why I think he's largely counted. I think, because a lot I think of the times I just think he's just yeah, let's do that. That feels weird. You know? Uh, and I have to say, especially the second time, mm-hmm. that that ending mm-hmm. where everybody breaks character and starts smiling at the camera and dancing really felt like they were pissing into my face. Like, I was actively aggravated. So you were, you were mad. I was just yeah. like, I patiently <coughs> sat through these three mm-hmm. hours desperately trying to find any kind of cohesion, any kind of point, anything to hang my hat on. And all I could do is say, man, I love Laura Dern. Because I do love Laura mm-hmm. Dern. No matter what and, happens, and, you and, and, and I would not say anything bad about her. And she sells a lot of really tough scenes. Like, they may not make sense, but they wouldn't be easy to play. Right? There's and, that interview scene yeah. that... Uh, Even just the scene with the neighbor, there's mm-hmm. something really intense about the oh, confrontation between the two of them. And it's, the acting is good. It's just, it doesn't add up to anything. And to add up to not only not adding up to anything, but them smiling at us and saying, huh, we got you. I, I, almost I, I, like, I didn't interpret it as that. Well, that's what it felt like to yeah, me. Yeah, and, like, and I, <clears throat> I, I respect that. And I think a lot of people could could take that uh, that way. I I feel like it's it's all about the these this idea of the women in danger, right? That's the subtitle: and a woman in trouble. A woman in trouble. But these women have then found each other in this time traveling world, dream state, whatever, and then through connecting together, then they are more empowered and they can share their stories, and uh, they're they're feeling like they're not. Uh, in as much danger now because they have each other and that's and that's what they're celebrating at the very end of the of the film and and I took it that way I just didn't think it was very well done no. it, yeah. it, 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 was, it was, was like no remember emotional payoff at all I'm, I'm mentioning something about Mary again there's a, a bit of like this blooper stuff with uh, with singing singing this song that kind of thing Um that I, I I felt they they did a better job of, and they kind of earned that. And you might be going, oh, okay, yeah. well, I, I hated that as much as I hated the Magnolia. The few bit things here. that like I was pleasantly surprised to see Terry Crews in the movie. Yeah, I, I just yeah, had no, no, I, I had no memory man. of him being in the movie. And <laughs> no, he's no. in the movie, no. and that for some reason made me smile. But like honestly, uh, this sounds like I'm being shitty, but I, I'm just. Did you enjoy watching it? I I liked it more the second time and this is your second time it sounds like you hated it, it was, even more than the first time it was homework to do this like i watched it in two sittings i'll admit i i didn't make it the three hours and uninterrupted i mm-hmm. had to take a breather mm-hmm. but uh i i found it actively aggravating it, it, it exhausts you it's and it's not an easy film to watch no. like i've said in the past when i've talked shit about movies i'm like i i tried I earnestly tried. When I reviewed Joel Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera, I plugged that DVD in and I watched it front to back and I actively tried to like it. I just didn't. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. But mm-hmm. I understand people liking the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. And I do not, not... You don't understand. I do not understand people did, defending did, Okay, this. did you like... Uh, up until this b- <coughs> business when, when when she has when she has sex with her co... Uh, co-star and we know that we're going in that direction did you like the story 
the beginning involving her and the making of this film and this Polish film that had this uh, curse first, on it. And did, did you like that? The that first, first hour act? and 15 minutes laid some track that would suggest that perhaps there was a story, here. Mm-hmm. but it's completely abandoned. But then it goes as he tends to do in the second half of his films, which are shorter mm-hmm. typically than this. He goes into a very different direction when you expect it's going to go this way. And then we get about an hour, maybe a little bit more of dream sequence. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. we get cut. And that last scene we were in was actually just a scene being shot for the movie. Or was all of it? Does it matter? There's no answers here. Mm-hmm. And there's no questions here. <laughs> it's just, I think, again, like Vanilla Sky, he wants it to wash over you and make you think big thoughts. Mm-hmm. But for me, personally, I found it aggravating. But he didn't, ex- Lynch doesn't explain anything here. No. And Crow over-explained yeah. Because I, I know what happened at the end because of these long... Would you have rather had big, long monologues in the third act explaining what was going on? Or that, I would you, have, that you, you have to... I would find that problematic, Jason. But honestly, right now sitting with you, I would rather watch Vanilla Sky twice. Really? Than watch this movie again right now. Okay. It would take more time to watch Vanilla Sky twice. But mm-hmm. that's how much this movie pisses me off. And let's... That's the thing about David Lynch. And I'm not going to, like, I'm not dismissive entirely David Lynch. I'll defend really weird things like uh, Wild at Heart and Eraserhead. I will give thumbs up reviews to, right? Uh, The Elephant Man, I think, is a decent adaptation Mm -hmm. and shows that he can actually have the discipline to tell a story. The Straight Story, I don't know if you saw that. Straight Straight Story is is very... uh... But again, intensely... That was a for hire gig for him, but... And intensely aggravating to me because what it shows me is that he does know how to follow the rules and tell a story. He just opts not but to. But were those his screenplays? It wasn't in the, the straight story wasn't his screenplay. No. Um, but he can tell a story. I, I know Eraserhead was his. Wild at Heart is a story. I, I can't completely, because I, I, I'm not sure I can completely get my head around what Eraserhead is about still to this day. For me, it's... Yet I appreciate it. Yeah. Parental anxiety um, is what it's about for me. But, I mean, yeah. it's probably something different for most people. Yeah, and, and, and that's what I like about Lynch films is that you can have that type of thing but this 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 is a tough one for a lot of people and i recognize that and it's i'm 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 not it's not going to be showing up on any top 20 whatever shows that we have in the future for me but i i think there's things that are interesting in it it's i'm always thinking and i'm thinking for years after i see a david lynch film and uh that is not the case with most movies I watch, or I don't need to think about it. I I, I just saw Jordan Peele's Us. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about that. Um, you may see it, and you'll you'll perhaps get a more coherent story uh, for sure than than the Lynch film. But I think a lot of people are going to go to Us and uh, and and not like it because uh, he does not spell everything out for his audience in the way that uh, that Lynch doesn't spell things out. But it's not that Lynch isn't spelling things out. There's nothing to spell out. That's my frustration. You know, if I thought he was being clever or subversive, I could get behind it. I would be on the Lynch team. But I think after a point, it just becomes Lynchy. Okay, but but what what if Laura Dern is all of these women that in a past life or in a different point, she... She is these characters who have Much been like abused, when you were and then lost highway by saying it's about Satan's relationship with their lives. I would say, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Like, but to me, it's interesting to be able to analyze, and and I could be completely wrong. And yeah. Lynch has something different in mind, and the actors had something different in mind. But it, it's something to talk about. It's more, it's but more like interesting. I keep saying, that's my problem. I don't think Lynch had something different in mind. I think he just wanted everybody to clap at another David Lynch movie. Hmm. Um, when I review bad movies, and I'm sorry, but I think this is a bad movie. Even like when I did worst episode ever, and I reviewed like Battlefield or yeah, <laughs> like this. There's somebody that I could recommend that movie. There's somebody who I would say this movie is garbage. You will love it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I cannot think of a single living human being that I know that I would. You're you're, you're, a, you're across from one. So that I would recommend this movie to. Like <laughs> honestly, like it's, I know you're a David Lynch fan, so I don't have to recommend it to you. But like. If I saw this movie and I bumped into you off uh, outside of the movie theater and you asked me, should I see this movie? I would say no. Go I would say away. no. But I wouldn't be able to stop you from seeing it. But, but, but I those would say who, no. Again, the, with a lot of the movies we're talking about, like the, those like, who are watching it know what they're getting into. I hope so. This is not a... He's not a brand new filmmaker where we have no idea what this is going to be. You know, and... Uh, Magnolia. We had Boogie Nights. We yeah. knew this this guy was a little bit out there, and it, it was going to be an in your face, profane type of movie with Magnolia. People walked in. If they walked in, they're like, "Oh, I like Tom Cruise movies." Maybe that that would yeah. be the only group that would be in danger of of being disappointed. But it's not that I don't whole... like art house cinema. It's I just don't like fake art house cinema. Mm. This feels fake to me. Yeah. I, 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 I think there's more to it than that, but I, I can't de- defend this movie as much as I defend some of the other ones. And when if you like Lynch, before. go ahead. If you don't like Lynch, I don't know, enter at your own risk. And there may be some people who like Lynch that did not like this movie. Again, as I said, I think it's his second worst film. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I have the curse of wanting to figure it out. So I know at some point I'm going to sit for another three hours you have the and watch curse, this again. You have the curse of thinking it's figure out a bull. <laughs> Is my opinion. I never figured out. Yeah, that's true. some pretty exhaustive uh debating over some long movies uh, this is an epic episode but there's some epic movies like mm-hmm. if we tried to distill our conversation about you know shortcuts into 15 or 10 minutes it, it, we, we wouldn't do it justice yeah. so thanks for bearing with us through this uh <laughs> we've all bandaged up from our fighting we're good uh mr dubray what was your least favorite of these WTF director masterclass film. It was um, it was actually you corrected me seventy five minutes, which felt like uh, three and a half hours. Penn and Teller get killed is number six for me. Mm-hmm. I do not recommend this movie to anybody at all. Um, it's uh, it's not particularly funny. Uh, I feel like it is a uh, a once great director who was just trying to get work in the late eighties, and he got 
stuck with these guys who were kind of culture figures and were given the chance to make a movie, which we both, I think, agree is not great. Yeah. <laughs> not the the place for them. You know, their art has a place, but it's not on um, You would never guess silver screen. that the person who directed Penn and Teller Get Killed was the same person who directed Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde. We didn't talk about it a whole lot in the review, yeah. but Bonnie and Clyde changed American cinema forever. Yeah. And Penn and Teller get killed. Um, it's uh, forgotten. Uh, is something I'm going to try to forget after <laughs> this. Yeah. Uh, my number five film, uh, and I think we both agreed, is terrible. Is Vanilla Sky. Uh, it didn't make me as angry as the first time I saw it, but it still is a very bad movie. And what probably what annoyed me about it the most was I felt that there were talented people. And there was the the seeds and the potential for a very good movie in here, um, but it was not this movie at all. And I never would have uh, made kind of the the second most important role, Penelope Cruz, in this film. When the Cameron Diaz, this was uh, you know other than something about Mary, which I think people would say has been the role of her career to this point. This is she's over. This is her being best. John she she's terrific in being John Malkovich and. Um, and she was awesome in this movie. She's one of these people that gets nominated for the Precursor Awards, but never the Oscar nomination. Yeah. I think she should have been up for an Oscar for Vanilla Sky. But once her character is removed from the film, turn it off and just dream, because it's about <laughs> dreams, that it, the rest of it is a better movie than it actually is. Your dream will be better than Tom Cruise's dream. It will, it will be much, much better. Number four is... I. I'm I'm not going to defend it, but I like Lynch, Inland Empire, uh, and I, I suspect it's going to be lower on 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 your list. Uh, but it, it is one of his worst films. But he doesn't, to me, make an uninteresting film. But I, I know that we disagree on 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 that. Uh, number three to me was it was like the sleeper, the 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 treasure, and this uh, <laughs> uh, group of six is vacuuming completely nude in paradise. When I saw that, I thought, this has got to be a horrible movie based on that title, even though it's an interesting title. I, I think I went in with a little bit of a critical attitude. Right. And five minutes in, I was I was laughing. I was having a good time. But it is it is dark, dark comedy. It's aggressively um, aggressive. But if you like Danny Boyle <laughs> and if you like dark comedy and you like you know, these small films, I, I, I think you could do worse. And Timothy Spall, I think you could almost say he's an underrated actor. And he gets uh, to shine a little bit more in, in this role than he does in some of the Hollywood roles he gets cast in, in Tim Burton films and, and Harry Potter and that kind of thing. Uh, my my second favorite film is Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. I, I love this movie. I, I remember watching it over and over and over again. It was one of the first DVDs uh, that I, I bought when the DVD thing uh, first happened. I watched every single feature multiple times. Uh, I was fascinated by uh, his vision for this film, how personal it was for him. Uh, I thought everything was very effective. I thought it was a great cast. Uh, in particular, I... Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I agree that it is a strong, subtle performance. He would play some bigger-than-life characters later on. Yeah. Um, uh, Julianne Moore, I, I loved. I know we disagreed on that. I thought she played a drug addict and somebody who just doesn't know how to cope with the circumstance she's in in her life. 
that well and she is she is suicidal and uh, there's this mania to the entire performance that not a lot of actors could could keep up that kind of energy through an entire film and and so i appreciated what she was doing while it appears quite over the top my this was one of my absolute favorite performances by tom cruise i feel like he steals the movie um but he steals it early and he keeps it up and i i the early scenes i thought okay this is well within tom cruise's wheelhouse but i i have not seen him uh be able to pull off the notes that he pulls in the second and third acts of the film particularly the third act um and while we we disagree on that one of the other things uh that i didn't mention in the review because this is a long long episode but <laughs> i'm going to mention here that i think is kind of interesting is a few years after this, Paul Thomas Anderson made it, and I still think it's a kind of an underrated movie called The Master, mm -hmm. which is about Scientology. I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson was thinking ahead. He became friends with Tom Cruise. Cruise took him to the Scientology <laughs> meetings. Philip Seymour Hoffman might have been in on that too. Philip Seymour Hoffman was later in a, a villain in a Mission Impossible movie. Um, and I, I, I think inside two <laughs> of them together got that information removed themselves from the church of scientology and made the master which is a, a movie that i highly recommend but with great performances but i, I feel like magnolia was kind of the origin of that and again but, what's with him with characters singing songs out of nowhere anyway <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it in his films i don't like it in every movie but the number one movie and there's no doubt that short shortcuts is a classic robert altman was never fully appreciated he was no appreciated by movie nerds like myself uh th there are not many kubrick's in this category another guy and, and hitchcock guys who never won a competitive academy award um the academy just righted a wrong with spike lee a few weeks ago but uh there's so many that don't get recognized and it's a real tragedy because there are probably half a dozen movies that robert altman made that are are better than the average winner of a best director academy award and i well, he got nominated. Shortcuts only got one nomination. It was for Best Director. I think it's a very well-written film. An incredible acting from the ensemble cast. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't think Julianne Moore would have been in Boogie Nights or Magnolia if it hadn't have been for being there in Shortcuts. There was something about that role that kind of stood and, out. Again. And also, I, the, again, it was Julianne Moore's decision to do that scene uh, without wearing not, underwear. Not according to the documentary on the Criterion disc. You, uh, you, Altman was talking, you heard that was Altman told Altman her to do that? Altman was talking to Madeline Stowe, and she didn't think she could do it. Mm -hmm. So he ended up approaching uh, Julian Moore afterwards, at least according to the documentary okay. on the Criterion disc. Uh, okay, I, I was under the impression that, that Moore made that decision. Um, she wasn't that well-known at that point. I, that her her role she, in this kind of led to a lot more work in independent cinema, and then and then she got noticed by more and more people. Now she's she'd done her, nudity for Body of Evidence, but she said she was conflicted about it yeah. because she didn't really feel like it was necessary nudity, but she did it anyway because yeah. it was a high profile role. Mm -hmm. she, 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 clearly, if you've watched Julian Moore, she doesn't have a problem with nudity, but there's yeah. nudity and there's that scene from Shook. It's right. There's yeah. something really like wow about it mm -hmm. well look uh obviously we were going to agree on the top spot the only okay. thing i would disagree with what you said about uh shortcuts is that i would also caution people though as much as i love robert altman he 
he's not flawless. He has made some bad movies. Uh, yeah, there's some bad ones out there, some, for there's sure. Some thinkers out there. But uh, for the most part, it's a pretty <laughs> safe bet. Um, well, we agreed on half of the list. Well, that's but better not, than we normally do. Not the bottom half of the list, because no. clearly, if I could put it lower than six, I would. Yes, <laughs> I, know, I, I knew we would I disagree mean, on this one. Yeah. Like, again... It's funny because I hear you defending it because you defend Lynch, but honestly, like, I encourage you to listen to the episode. It really doesn't sound like you like the movie a bunch. I, 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 I'm so... You're it would probably be like one of those two and a half, three star, like, the thumbs in to the side. One of Larry's... It's an interesting movie. Interesting. <laughs> um, but I, I, I certainly understand why people don't like this movie. And the first time I saw it, I was just like, whoa, this is a marathon for yeah. sure. I, and I, I haven't felt that with some of his other movies. So It's certainly a lot of Lynch. In, in Jason's defense, like, I don't like Lynch, so it was an uphill battle. And it's three hours. So if you're not going to like it, you're not going to like it for three No, three no, hours. no. Don't, and don't see it. It's, you're going to be... Again, if you don't like the first 15 minutes, you're really safe because you're not going to like the rest. But, um, and, and this, like, small... The small BBC movie I put as higher than it. Yeah, so, so, I mean, that yeah. tells you it's not among my favorite David Lynch films. So, uh, Number five is Vanilla Sky. Uh, he, I, I had this thing that I thought maybe revisiting would, would, would help me find another level of appreciation to it. Honestly, when I first saw the movie, I was right there with you. Like mm -hmm. I, was, I was so disappointed to feel almost like it hurt my feelings. Because of the love and trust that I had in Cabin Crow, mm -hmm. it's sort of like if I watched a Coen Brothers movie and I didn't like it, I yeah. would just assume it was something that I missed. Yeah. It couldn't be Cameron. No, it was Cameron. It, the movie doesn't... And work. Tom Cruise, I would yeah, say no, as well. It's yeah. a vanity project for both of them, mm -hmm. and they stepped on a rake here. Creatively, they just, like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, like... It's kind of the ugliest of failure because of how big it is. It's a Ew. big, ambitious dud. It just fucking lies and, and, he, and you're told in the arts to take a risk, and he took a risk, and he failed, and I guess he learned from it, and yeah. he went back to his wheelhouse a bit, but he really has not had an Almost Famous yeah. or a Jerry Maguire or even a Singles. Um, in, I, yeah. In, since this came out, yeah. you know, and... I suspect that the way you feel about Inland Empire is kind of how I feel about Penn and Teller. Because mm -hmm. I want to be saying it's charming and subversive and funny and I like Penn and Teller so I should like this movie. Yeah. So everything in me says like I should be fully endorsing Penn and Teller get killed. But I can't deny yeah. that for a comedy it's pretty short on laughs. And uh, But do I, I think it works more than those other two movies? I, I genuinely do. I genuinely like, do. Like, I actually thought going into this episode before I watched the movies that Vanilla Sky was going to be... Fifth place. Number yeah. six. Yeah. I, I thought it was going to, you know, I was going to... I could not see anything worse than this. <laughs> this this was so much worse. <laughs> it was just... Yeah. I, I did not enjoy I any... I, I just wish I was, there was... I was looking forward to it ending so I could get on to the one of the next movie. movies on yeah. the list or or 
watch anything really okay. it's sort of like I, I, mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth Jason but mm-hmm. I feel like with Penn and Teller I feel like the, that I'm sort of defending it in the same way you're defending Inland mm-hmm. Empire and that in your heart you kind of know it's not a good movie but you want to defend but it when I said that I wanted the characters killed off yeah. I, I saw this hurt in your face yeah. that was so and it was just, oh I stepped in it again like <laughs> we're back to the Tremors thing again where I'm uh, I wanted the movie to be better than it was definitely uh, but now we can go back to an agreement now that we've it's, disagreed on the on the the bottom half of the list, we're going to agree on the top half of the but list. But it's the same movies. It's just, uh, yeah. you know. Just in third position, I am going to put Danny Boyle's Vacuuming Completely Naked in Paradise. Yeah. Uh, again, it sounded like I was being harder on it than it was. I just want to be honest about people about what they're getting. This was the movie, by the way, that was 75 minutes, not the Penn and Taylor. I got, okay, yeah. I, I got confused when you were talking about it. But anyway, it's only 75 minutes, but it feels longer just because of how aggressively aggressive it is. But the acting is really good, and Danny Boyle is an amazing, energetic filmmaker. Like, I don't think he could make a boring movie unless, well, if he tried to make a boring movie, I guess Danny Boyle could make it do it. He could make, I believe he could do any kind of style, is my point. Some people argued with me that Steve Jobs is a boring movie. I disagree I, and I, I, I it's, it's so interesting. It's just a lot of Aaron Sorkin dialogue in there. Uh, and so it was a weird marriage of Aaron Sorkin and Danny Boyle, but I, I, I really like all of these movies I mean yeah I don't think he I mean that's that's a sign of a great director that he cannot make an that's uninteresting that, movie I was only half joking when I said it's like a darker more vulgar version of Glencarry Glen Ross because yes. it's, yeah. it's like pretty ugly it's a pretty <laughs> ugly movie that's that's fair to say it is right? yeah. in second place I am putting Magnolia I might have sounded like I was talking shit about Magnolia mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have problems with Magnolia but I respect the ambition of the film yeah. I think there's amazing acting in it I think there's amazing sequences in it I just think that it's problematic and that all of its best ideas were cribbed from a different movie that's how I feel mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't sink the entire ship a lot of Quentin Tiro's best uh, Quentin Tarantino's best ideas we're not his fucking ideas. Well, Kill Bill is <laughs> like he's borrowed from so many. Exactly, it's fine. And you we've had do... revenge movies before yeah. like that, so you can yeah. do that. That's fine. Just yeah. just know that that's what you're doing. Cop to it, right? Don't be a quarantine. And you Don't... feel that Tarantino's honest about that? Yeah. Quarantine when... remade wreck, and if you look at the DVD, nowhere on the DVD anywhere does it mention it. And I think it's fucking dishonest and makes me angry well this but, is tarantino talking about sergio leone yeah. oh, no. and reference to he'll absolutely and, cop to it yeah he'll absolutely cop to it the same way george romero like night of the living dead and mm-hmm. arguably one of the most influential horror movies of the 60s yeah whenever he was asked about it he said he was ripping off richard matheson mm-hmm. he read uh, i am legend and like the idea of this guy alone in an empty planet being yeah. sieged by creatures he just switched vampires with zombies and in romero's head he did nothing innovative but to everybody else he changed the scape of horror but he caught to it that's what i'm saying and i also say beyond Mm -hmm. the 60s that's one of the the great horror movies of all time oh yeah i feel yeah i agree terrific but shortcuts i mean again this is another one of those lists where there was shortcuts and there's five other movies. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I really do. To think... me, it was Shortcuts, Magnolia, and four other okay. movies. But yeah. I think it's playing on a different level. I think it's like mm-hmm. so unique, yeah. so ambitious. At Raymond Carver, again, not easy to adapt, no. and he has a fervent fan base, which I count myself uh, as one of. And even though they made a lot of changes, and even though they made a lot of shit up, I have zero problems mm-hmm. because the soul of the stories, that oh, feeling is there 
that again i keep on going back to Chekhov because that's the best analog i have to it but that Chekhovian feeling that life is this imponderable mystery mm -hmm. and that even the worst part of it is bittersweet because we recognize that we all are stuck in the same quagmire and that is such a huge philosophical like note to play to play it successfully with one character would be a trick there's 22 of them here mm -hmm. and i wouldn't lose any of them i have a friend this is her favorite movie nice She's got of all taste. time good, good taste <laughs> I think what, what stops me from doing that or even saying that it's for sure that it's his best film is I, I, I still I have somehow of them. I shouldn't yeah, say that. I, I, I somehow am still stuck on like, I don't know why as somebody who like and would is willing to watch a three Power and a half Lynch. hour incoherent David Lynch film, why I'm stuck on Chris Penn, what happens to his character <laughs> and, and, and how, how they get out of that situation or if they get away with this you don't think killing they it, hey? killing this uh this this girl like and and how do they go back to their families and and, and all of that um whereas i feel the other stories resolve better they, they resolve not in a cutesy resolution type of way i mean francis mcdormand comes back in her house all of her possession her house is destroyed but her carpet her is awesome her carpet is awesome and her kid is pleased because they're the tv's there and there's some <laughs> toy or something but, but she, her life is pretty much in ruins there and we have characters who've lost their children that are like yeah. stuck in this like what what's the future like for us but that, that's the one that I'm, I'm so stuck on like what you know what what You're happened sure there he fits necessarily here. yeah the rest of it is so important and, and and so good and jennifer jason lee is terrific in those scenes but i i keep honing in on what uh, what Chris Penn was doing because he's very much known for Reservoir Dogs mm -hmm. of of all the roles that he had, but and he was playing a little bit more of an everyman in this. In he this was film. internalizing, and, and it. I thought he yeah. he was very very good, but then he has a big violent moment, but it's just kind of there. Mm -hmm. And once in a while in Altman films, that's the only thing is that we'll we'll have something that happens, and it's like yeah what what. The well, heck, it you know? certainly doesn't sit well, but I don't think it's supposed to I sit mean, well. I right? mean, Dr. T and the, the women, Richard Gere, somehow flies through. But I like a lot of... I like individual scenes. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not in the the great yeah. repertoire. But right somehow, Richard, area, there's yeah. a similar type of uh, event with, a, I guess, a storm or a tornado, which somehow flies Richard Gere in the air and he ends up in Mexico. Uh, and you're like, what? And then he delivers a and boy. And then he... He finally delivers yeah, a boy. Yeah, yeah, I really didn't like that one. Uh, I also... He uh, did right around this time to Predaporte, which I think is as bad as the player is good. <laughs> so, well, he, he couldn't have three in a row. There's yeah. three years in a row when he, he was, I guess, up for... A, I, I don't think it's as bad as it was made out to be. It was considered a real bomb yeah. when it came out, and it had high expectations because the player and shortcuts were... Were... So good. were you know, among the best movies of the two previous years. Yeah. He was working with a lot of the same people again, so. Yeah. But I, I miss, I wish there was another Robert Altman movie. I wish I could see another one, but. Alas. Uh, yeah. Alas. Well, yeah. thank you for joining me for the WTF DMC. Um, I don't know. We're still friends, right? Yes. Yes. We, so we get sorry. into. I must be comfortable now because I, I get into more fights. The first time I was so nervous to do one of these. I'm sorry. And I was like, I don't things. want to. Uh, I don't want to get on Larry's bad side here. 
I'm sorry I talk shit about Tom Cruise. That seemed to really rub you the wrong way. And if we talk about the right movies, if you're doing that with Vanilla Sky, if we're talking about uh, that War of the Worlds disaster movie with with Spielberg, I mean, I I, I get it. Like sometimes Tom Cruise, and he's doing the action hero that's in his wheelhouse right now. I would like him to get back to some of these these roles here um yes uh, the mummy yes i saw it in the theater i actually paid money to see the mummy and what scared me was uh it looked like universal was preparing to bring in all of their monsters and 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 go back to those classic movies yeah. so this was the mummy was the start of a series because of how uh, Russell Crowe's character? Anymore. They're still no, doing I, I think this man, one uh, should have uh, killed that idea. Yeah. At least, hopefully, it did. They're still doing the Invisible Man, apparently. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, anyway, uh, I think this is off of the course. I think we should wrap much up so. this yep. epic episode. Uh, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you. You will be here again. Great things in the future. And there it was, another episode bites the dust. How did we do? How would you rank these movies? Have you seen these movies? Um, are you okay with me being this far uh, away from my typical genre base uh, on the podcast? Please send feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And please check out the website at rankandreview.ca. And thank you so much for listening to my show. And please tell a friend. You have other movie friends, you know, people who love the movies that you talk to the movies about, that you go to the movies with. They deserve to hear Rankin Review too, damn it. Thanks, you guys. I drop every other Wednesday.